Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. All aboard! Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. Broadway, Broadway. It is live, after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. Welcome to Broadway Bullet Volume 209 for May 22nd, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we have got some star wattage this episode. Uh, we've got Danny Burstein, recently nominated for his second Tony as, uh, as Billis in South Pacific. We've got Carrie Butler, the newly Tony-nominated lead actress from Xanadu, here to talk about her new solo CD. We've got Capathia Jenkins and Lewis Rosen. Capathia Jenkins was Big Black Woman Stops the Show from Fame Becomes Me, and they've got a new CD out, and they perform live right here in our studio for you. We've also got a few shows on the boards. We've got Cinephilia, The Great American All-Star Traveling War Machine, and Coyote Rep's Lone Wolf series. <laughs> we got a jam-packed episode. Uh, before we get started, one favor. If you could just take a couple moments and give us a great five-star review in iTunes. Uh, they base their ranking systems for the featured page, and we've slowly been slipping down because we haven't been getting enough new reviews in. So uh, it really does have an impact. It helps other people find the show that are looking for podcasts and theater and art stuff. So if you could just take a quick 30 seconds, go to us in iTunes and give us a five-star review. Be greatly, greatly appreciated. Also remember, we have some new features on our website. Take advantage of the features because uh, all registered users can do them for free. You can post classifieds, auditions, looking for collaborators, directors, etc., roommate wanted things. It's a lot of things, and you know you're going to be running into theater people on them. Also, uh, we've got a new event posting, so if you've got a show going on, be sure to get it up there. All these things are anybody can look at, and it's free for registered users to post. Okay, well, that said, let's get on with this jam packed episode. Close. Well, South Pacific is back in Gotham for the first time in uh, over 50 years. Yep. And when I caught the performance, definitely one of my favorite performers uh, in the show, I got him here in the studio, Danny Burstein, uh, who is also Tony nominated for his great performance in Drowsy Chaperone as Adolfo just a couple years back. That's right. And uh, how is everything going here for you? Oh, gosh. Everything's going great. I've actually... Uh gone from a show that was uh, uh, heaven on earth to me, The Drowsy Chaperone, and closed that show, and three weeks later started rehearsal for South Pacific. And uh, talk about two dream jobs back-to-back. It's been wonderful, really. Not to mention not being unemployed for... Yeah, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) That's always good, not being unemployed. Yeah. 
So, uh, a little bit about South Pacific. I don't think we need to state too much of what it's about because I'm sure everybody's been, you know, if they're not in New York, they've probably seen it in summer stocks. Oh, sure. Community theaters. Even I did it in summer stock <laughs> when I was 17. It was one of my first shows at the Missoula Children's Theater. It was actually really? my first show doing the ensemble in South Pacific there. Really? You had a children's theater and you did South Pacific? Well, they had a community theater in addition to the children's oh, gotcha. theater. I was going to say, like, a, you know, an eight-year-old Emile DeVec. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved to have seen it. Some enchanted evening. You know, and it actually made me realize I actually hadn't ever seen the show. I think I saw it when I was like eight, but I, I did the production. Right. And I was like amazed how much I missed being backstage. Right. And, you know, the whole time I thought I knew the show and I, I saw it and all of a sudden there's a lot more race issues in there. Than yes, really it's very deep. And it's very, and the fact that they were talking about all those things in 1949 and that there was pressure uh, for them to not put all those things in the show and yet uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, insisted that it be in there. That's, that's pretty cool stuff and very heady stuff in 1949 considering, you know, we're talking about it, uh, you know, with uh, the political situation today. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty incredible that that's, uh, that they had the foresight uh, and the strength to put that in there. And indeed, it won the Pulitzer Prize. It certainly did. Was, what, was it the first musical? Or, I know it was one of the one of the first. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Uh, it was, I think it was one of the first, but I, I think uh, there was uh, 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 Kaufman and Hart won uh, for uh, uh, some musical with uh, one of the, Ger- the Gershwins. Forgive me for not knowing that, but I believe <laughs> they won uh, the Pulitzer as well. Uh, for, for the green for president, I can't remember the title. <laughs> yeah, I'm, oh, I'm a in the back bad of my theater queen. On. What's the matter with me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got your PR, okay. Barbara Carroll, to crack up here. Oh, hey, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> so, w- with all that notoriety, you know, with the it was a huge hit back then. Mary Martin, you know, yeah. you know, and the Pulitzer. Do you have any guesses as to why this is the actually first? Revival in New York? It's a very good question. I think when, uh, when Gypsy seems to come along every six months. So. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and, and of course, and they're all good productions of Gypsy, <laughs> every single one. Um, I think uh, Rogers and Hammerstein, the organization, was just very protective of the piece and they were waiting for the right time, or they were, the, they were waiting for the right time for the piece to be relevant uh, again as, uh, and as important. Uh, uh, so people would uh, see it in uh, a new light. And it's their, you know, it's truly their special baby, and they've been holding on to it. Um, of course, everybody's seen it in Summerstock, but uh, they were waiting for the right director and the right production. And uh, apparently uh, when Ted Chapin saw Light in the Piazza, that uh, sort of was the spark. He saw that and he thought, well, what a great idea. You know, that production team was just terrific. Michael Jurgen doing that beautiful set for Piazza. And he did our set for uh, South Pacific. And, of course, Bartlett Shear, uh, the director. And uh, Kathy Zuber's costumes. Um, and uh, we have Don Holder doing the lights. A brilliant job with the lights. And uh, we're, you know, very lucky. And they took a chance with that production team. And... Um, Personally, I'm very glad they did. Seems to be working, and it went from being a, a limited engagement, supposed to end on June 22nd, mm-hmm. and now it's open-ended. That's right. They told us on opening night, even before we opened, that we would be uh, an open-ended run, and that made a lot of people very happy because it meant you know employment for us uh, <laughs> through the summer. 
So that's great. Well, I haven't seen, the, I'm not saying there isn't one, but I can't recall the last open-ended run at the Lincoln Center. Uh, how, how does this throw the rest of their schedule or what they've been planning on? Well, I think the last open-ended run was probably Piazza. Uh, and that that was probably going to run for three months or so, and then they kept it open, I think, for a year and a half, two years. And uh, what they do is they move the shows that were going to be there, uh, that were slated to be there, to other theaters like the Royale and uh, and maybe the Court uh, and, you know, another theater uh, downtown, more in the uh, theater district. And uh, they rent out those spaces, and they do the season there. Now, you're playing Luther Billis. I am. In this episode. Uh of another very big character and very different, Adolfo in uh, in Drowsy Chaperone mm-hmm. was definitely another. You're unrecognizable, quite frankly, is from Adolfo to to Billis. Yeah. Billis. Well, I you know I honestly I think that's, that's other than following you as an actor, you know, and and, right. and and the thing, I would never have guessed that it was the same person, right, playing both roles. Yeah, most people don't know that uh, that I that I played Adolfo. Who come to see, I, and I put it purposely didn't put it in my bio. Uh, in the playbill, because uh, you know, I let them you know discover it at some other time. I don't want them thinking Aldolfo when they come to see it. <laughs> um, I want them. Why also. ever not? <laughs> well, you know what? I think it's my responsibility to be different and let them uh, feel like they're discovering uh, the character and the show outside of the stuff that I've done in the past. Uh, I, I honestly think it's my responsibility to be different and be surprising and. Uh, and I work, I really do, I, t- I take it very seriously. I work very hard on uh, being different physically and uh, vocally and, um, and trying, uh, b- try as much as possible, it sounds crazy, to be a different person. You know, there are some actors, you see them, they have unbelievably, they're wonderful actors, but you, know, you always sort of know that's the same exact, you know, it could have been, you could pop them into one movie or one show and they're exactly the same. I, I try not to do that on purpose. I really work hard not to. And it, and it shows. I think it also brings up another interesting question. You know, in the business of theater and in the business of getting yourselves jobs, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily think that reflects on other people's lack of acting ability, mm-hmm. but it's easier to get cast, I think, a lot of times oh, when of you can pretty much do the same thing over and over. The director and producers go, oh, yes, that's of what course. they do. They do that very well. They will. <laughs> that's what they do. They pigeonhole you. And uh, actually, um, I started uh, when I was a kid and I was a teenager uh, doing musicals. And uh, I could only get seen for musicals after that. And it was uh, disappointing to me because uh, people wanted to, as you said, pigeonhole you. And uh, uh, so I went to grad school and uh, I thought I I tried to find a very good grad school. I went to the University of California, San Diego, uh, and I got my MFA out there and put some uh, dramatic roles on my uh, resume. And uh, it was important to me to not be just a musical theater guy. I wanted to be seen as an actor. And um, I, got a, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to study at the Moscow Art Theater while I was there and to work at the La Jolla Playhouse and work with Des Mackinoff and a lot of uh, wonderful directors and uh, artists out um, at the Old Globe and the Playhouse. And uh, that put different kinds of uh, credits on my resume. So people saw that I did this, you know, uh, straight plays and also musicals. And uh, that opened a lot of doors for me as well. I I just refuse to be pigeonholed. I try and do uh, lots of different things, you know, uh, video games, you know, uh, uh, commercials. You know, a lot of times you've heard, you know, lots of commercials. And my voice has been on there doing different kinds of crazy accents and sounds and... um, and uh, I pride myself on that. 
you know, and when one part of the business isn't kicking for me, <laughs> you know, I have that to fall back on or, an, or another thing to fall back on. Well, I think it shows the character Luther Billis can often be played and I think is often interpreted very broad. It's the comedic, you know, it's really yeah. the comedic relief of the show. And I think a lot of there can be a lot of tendency to play it just broad and comedic, right. which you do, right. but you do imbibe it with a lot of uh, reality. It's grounded. You believe right. this character is just that crazy, nutty. Right. Well, you know what? I also believe that everything you play is reality. I believe that, you know, uh, Aldolfo was real, you know, in in that world. <laughs> that was, you know, he believed that. And... Um, I, I think that uh, everything that goes on in South Pacific is is real for Luther Billis as well. And um, actually, we had guys, uh, vets, come and talk to us, guys who were uh, stationed on the Intrepid. Uh, and they all talk like this, you know, hey, I had real thick accents. And you'd think that, you know, if, if I went that far and really did what uh, they did, uh, sounded like they sounded <laughs> and walked like they walked, People would have said, oh, that's too much of a caricature. So I actually had to pull myself back a little bit. And I just, you know, gave him a thick New York accent and tried to uh, approach it that way. And, um, I, you know, I, it's, it wasn't – the accent was not particularly hard for me. I'm from New York. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, that, that was not a hard thing. And I just sort of uh, – uh, gave him a background and a story. I figured he was probably a, a bricklayer uh, in New York and probably worked on the Chrysler Building and then, you know, was uh, patriotic and joined the uh, CBs, the Construction Battalion of the Navy. And, uh, you know, I, I try and approach it in a realistic way and uh, and hope that everything else falls into place. All right. Well, before we continue, we've got a little yeah. bit of a treat. We've got an advanced copy of the cast album Yay. for South Pacific. Very and, uh, cool. Figure maybe we can play nothing like a dame. Fantastic from this. Any anything you want want to set up about maybe specifically about this number? You uh, know what? It's it's very rare that you hear uh, twenty five guys on stage singing uh, at the same time, and the sound is so great. The orchestra, thirty piece orchestra. You know that's not bad either. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Nothing like a dame. All right. We got sunlight on the sand, we got moonlight on the sea. We got mangoes and bananas you can pick right off a tree. We got volleyball and ping pong and a lot of dandy games. What ain't we got? We ain't got dames. We get packages from home, we get movies, we get shows. We get speeches from our skipper and advice from Tokyo Rose. We get lettuce doused with point fume, we get dizzy from the smell. What don't we get? You know damn well. We got nothing to put on a clean white suit for. What we need is what there ain't no substitute for. There is nothing like a dame. Nothing in the world. There is nothing you can name that is anything like a dame. We feel blue, we feel lonely and in grief We feel every kind of feeling but the feeling of relief We feel hungry as the wolf felt when he met Red Riding Hood What don't we feel? We don't feel good! Lots of things in life are beautiful but, brother There is one particular thing that is nothing whatsoever in any way, shape or form like any other 
There is nothing like a day. Nothing in the world. There is nothing you can name that is anything like a day. Nothing else is built the same. Nothing in the world. Has a soft and wavy frame like the silhouette of a dame. There is absolutely nothing like the frame of a dame. So suppose a day made bright or completely free from flaws Or as faithful as a bird dog or as kind as Santa Claus It's a waste of time to worry over things that they have not Be thankful for the things they got orchestrations too they are yep the original orchestrations I, it's it's really cool in fact the guys uh, at the first uh, the, the musicians in the pit uh, at the first rehearsal had the original books that they used in 1949. So they were opening the books, and you know they had all the doodles. Well, they and had li- the original books. Yeah. You know, one thing I always hate about the stock productions of Rodgers and Hammerstein yeah. things is you don't get the full book. I know. This is, I, I always, this is also why I didn't know the whole show. Yeah. Because you get the sides. Exactly. <laughs> You've got, you know, the typical actor, your line and the line before it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So this was, you know, the actual stuff, you know, in hand that only you know the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization has. Uh, so we had the we had access to all that kind of stuff. It was very cool. Now, uh, in, in talking about your you know your training and building up, you you've been working a lot and pretty consistently. But obviously, yeah. the thank you your, God your profile has you know kind of gone up in the past couple of years with uh-huh. with your Tony nomination for Drowsy Chaperone and well while you were working pretty steadily all the way through the the end of the run of Drowsy Chaperone and you got. Mm-hmm. Right into this, so right. have you been able to see any results of how that how that nomination has helped with your profile in the business? Or? Oh gosh, I, you know what? I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I just uh, go out there every day, and you know. I, I mean, besides a nice pat on the back for a job well done, has, yeah. it, has it? Have you seen results? Has it meant something for you, career wise? Business-wise, I you know I guess it may you know, help to get me into a certain audition every now and then, but. Uh, I, I pretty much I let my agents worry about that, and uh, I'm very lucky that I have some fantastic agents uh, at the Gage Group. They're incredible, and uh, I just try and worry about the work, 
and hope that you know it pays off. Uh, that's that's the way I've always been. I've tried not to worry about uh, uh, that end of it. And uh, in a way, maybe uh, because I have uh, only concentrated on that, uh, all this is happening at the right time. You know, maybe if it happened when I was much younger. Uh, I would have gotten a fat head because of all of it, and I would have, you know, actually taken seriously some of the things that people write about you, um, or cared what people write. <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes, you know, a lot of people, a lot of actors don't read reviews, and uh, I, I, I read them all. I read it. I read everything. Because, you know, some people hate you, and you can never please all the people, and some people love you, you know. And it's just the way it is. Uh, but I guess years ago I might have been, uh, you know, thrown by, you know, some of that, the good and the bad. But I just try and worry about doing the work, and uh, that seems to uh, have done uh, me well. Early on in your career, when you were just getting going, either before right. or after grad school, uh, did you were you always working pretty steadily or, or what were maybe some of your most memorable day jobs so to speak <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was a dancing panda on Conan O'Brien uh, let's see <laughs> I've had some off I was a, a string bean uh, I was dressed up as a string bean in Rockefeller Center handing out flyers uh, you know, I did a little bit of everything. Dressed up as a dog for people's birthdays. You know, it's – I'm not proud of <laughs> any of those things. But, uh, you know, I did it. And, uh, I, you know, I really tried to work hard. And, and the best thing about uh, the shows is that uh, – and being in New York – is that uh, you can audition for other things, and if they come along, you know, uh, uh, Law and Orders and television commercials and voiceovers, and um, you can you can do them. Uh, for example, during uh, Drowsy Chaperone, it was about a year and a half ago, I auditioned for a, a film with uh, Ewan McGregor and Hugh Jackman called Deception, and that just opened uh, a week and a half ago, and uh, Finally, you know, the fi movie finally came out, and I went to see it, and uh, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. You know, and I remember you know, the thing that you remember, I guess, when you're watching it is what was going on while you were filming, and what was going on in your life, and and which take they used, and uh, it was it was a, an interesting thing to see, and pretty cool being in uh, South Pacific, being in a hit show. I did my Sunday matinee, and then went off with some friends to see the movie. You know, right across the street at the uh, Lincoln Plaza. Um, yeah, it's the life of a New York actor. So how long has it been now that you've been working exclusively, you know, making your living as an actor? Um, uh, pretty much since I got... Not discounting the string bean. Joke. Discounting the string bean. <laughs> uh, uh, hey, I was proud of that string bean. Um, I was a damn good string bean. My string bean came from Brooklyn. Um, uh, I guess since 91. That's so, pretty much when uh, when uh, I continue. I act. It was about a year after I got out of graduate school that I've been only uh, an actor. Now, I, I seem to see that there seems to be different stories between yeah. career paths between actors who are not from New York and people who have come from New York. And I, I haven't quite been able to put my thumb on it yet, but I'm always kind of interested. It seems like it does seem like more of the really working actors are not New York That's right. natives. I don't know why. And I'm just wondering maybe as a New York native, kind of your perspective of if you talking to other actors, what the, if you see a different perspective. You know, maybe they have, uh, they have more tenacity than us lazy New Yorkers <laughs> who were here already. 
But uh, my wife uh, is uh, from Birmingham, Alabama, and she's an actress, and she came here with uh, $200 in her pocket and, uh, you know, worked uh, almost immediately. She really, um, I think she had a, uh, she waited tables at Windows uh, on the World, at the top of the World Trade Center, uh, for about two weeks and uh, had a big audition coming up and I think it was for uh, Phantom of the Opera, uh, in which she was in the original cast. And for listeners and, who don't know, this is the lovely Rebecca Luker. Exactly. Uh, yeah, she, you know, and uh, she uh, she quit her uh, waitressing job to go to the audition. They wouldn't let her out, and she said, "Well, you know what? This is what I came here for." And uh, and she went to the audition, and the rest is history. I'm glad to say, uh, but she really. Uh, she has a lot of tenacity, and maybe uh, you know people who come here out of town really want it even more uh, than uh, than people here who have something to fall back on. Maybe not having something to fall back on might make them fight harder for it. Yeah, that certainly makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, I don't know. I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> Do you buy it? <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> Sounded good. You know, write a dissertation. On it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, before we uh, continue and finish up, I'd like to play uh, your song from your Tony-nominated okay. role. This I is- Am Aldolfo. Yeah. What? <laughs> there you go. Any story behind this or anything that you'd like to, to share? Uh, it was uh, the most sublime experience uh, I've uh, ever had uh, on the stage. Uh, working with uh, Casey Nicola is heaven on earth, and working opposite Beth Level is is another slice of heaven on earth. Uh, it was just a, a great experience, and a great experience for so many people who had been working for so many years and not really uh, been pushed to the forefront. And then all of a sudden, all us uh, Broadway vets were there and starring roles, and uh, it was a, a great thing to see. It was a great experience. I'll never forget it. All right, well, let's take a listen. I'm sure that you have heard the name Aldalfo. A ladies' man who wins acclaim, Aldalfo. Well, lovely miss, I am the same, Aldalfo. I introduce myself. I am Aldalfo. Nice to meet you. Shall we? Not so fast. So just in case you didn't hear, Aldalfo. I'll try to make it very clear, Aldalfo. The lovely ladies always cheer, Aldalfo. When I repeat myself, I am Aldalfo. Understood. I can sing it high, Aldalfo. I can sing it low, Aldalfo. I can sing it very fast, Aldalfo. I can sing it very slowly. I do it now, but it would take hours. Now let us see if you can remember my name. I'll give it a shot. Now who's the fellow that you see? Aldolfo. And how should you refer to me? Aldolfo. And who is it I'll always be? Aldolfo. Now sing it proudly. You are Aldolfo. Now let me spell it out for Joe. For all you lovely ladies that didn't hear for some reason because maybe you are hard of hearing or something. I don't know. It goes 
talked about earlier with you know you're wanting to you know get into the meat and really make every character different mm-hmm. um is there a specific technique that you rely on i mean are you the stanislavski school the the group school is do you follow any, uh, any particular aesthetic i've i've uh i've sort of had all different kinds of training uh I, I went to the high school of performing arts here in new york city when i was 14 and stayed there for uh four years and uh it was a very uh, stanislavski approach early stanislavski approach and uh and at the same time, we had a lot of different teachers come in uh, from different schools, uh, different acting schools. And um, there were d- many different approaches. Uh, Moscow Art Theater is, was a, another different approach. And uh, the approach out in uh, grad school uh, at UCSD was another approach. I sort of uh, take what I, I guess I took what uh, I liked from each teacher and put it in my little uh, bag and, uh, you know, and I open the bag and see what, you know, comes out each time. Um, I, I try and honestly believe every moment as much as possible uh, as I can when I'm on stage. But that doesn't mean uh, I don't, you know, do physical things, you know, and let those things help me as well. And a lot of actors, you know, who are one or the other do not, uh, you know, you know, let... Uh, you know, dis- make any decisions that way, uh, physical yeah. decisions that way. You know, it's got to be from the inside out. Exactly. And there's that, there's that old, uh, you know, story when, uh, what's it, uh, Laurence Olivier uh, was do- doing Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman, and Dustin Hoffman stayed up for uh, three days or whatever for a scene they had together. Uh, and uh, because he was supposed to be up for three days and beaten and exhausted <laughs> – and uh, Olivier said to him, well, why don't you try acting or something like that? <laughs> but, you know, I, I for me, I, you know, I would never say that to Dustin Hoffman because it works for him. That works for him. And he's, you know, kind of brilliant. But, you know, you wouldn't say it to Olivier either, you know, <laughs> tell him to stay up for three days because that wouldn't work for him. So I think each individual actor has to pull out whatever works for them. And um, I, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So any uh, any of your favorite professors along the way that you want to name check? Oh, here? gosh. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, my uh, favorite and uh, greatest prof- uh, professor uh, uh, was a fellow named Ed Greenberg, who ran the St. Louis Muni, who, uh, oh, Barbara knows Ed, too. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he uh, got me my equity card when I was 19, uh, was my professor at Queens College, and uh, he uh, started my uh, career off, uh, and I owe him everything. And I was, you know, with him uh, till the very end. And I told him so as he was even uh, in the hospital there. You know, I I told him I said, you know, you taught me everything. And so I I feel very blessed 
to have uh, that uh, memory and have his memory uh, with me all the time. I mean, there are a lot of people. Also, my junior high school t- teacher, Stuart Glazer, who said, you should go to the High School of Performing Arts. And I said, great. What's the High School of Performing Arts? You know, and he explained it to me. I'd never heard of it before. I was a kid growing up in the Bronx and Queens and and uh, he said, you know, you have to do these monologues. And I said, growing up in the Bronx and Queens and New yeah. York, interested in musical theater. How did Is that, that weird? Your, how did that go with your friends? Oh, you know, <laughs> basically I didn't mention it. I, I just knew I wanted to be an actor. You know, I didn't know uh, whether it was in musicals necessarily or, uh, but uh, I, I just, I always had that feeling deep inside. And, uh, you know, and then. There were different people who influenced me uh, greatly. Tony Randall was a, a dear friend, and uh, I worked with him in Summerstock. And uh, when uh, when we worked together, he had he had not uh, put together his National Actors Theater on Broadway yet. And um, I said to him, this was about 1996. Uh, I beg your pardon. Uh, Gosh, when was it? 1986. <laughs> yeah, <it> was <laughs> oh, oh, I'm getting old. Um, and... <laughs> It was 1986, and, and I said to him, look, if you ever do that National Actors thing, uh, thing on Broadway, I'd love to be there because we had a great time working together. And he said, well, I'll do that. So in 1991, I actually – the phone rang, and I picked it up, and I heard, Danny, Tony Randall, just like that. <laughs> and there he was you know, asking me to be a part of his uh, company on Broadway. And so uh, I uh, stuck with him uh, for a while and um, – and uh, watched him on stage like a hawk and uh, learned so much from him. You know, he had this wonderful, instant, wonderful rapport with an audience. And I, I once asked him how he did that, and he said, I love them. <laughs> he said, you have to love your audience. And, uh, you know, even it's silly, but things like that, you know, teach you so much. A lot of actors actually resent the audience, uh, you know, and feel like it's us against them. And uh, he taught me to uh, embrace it, and uh, and he also taught me to take it seriously and and listen, which is the most important thing. Well, he certainly had a chance to put all of this on display. Is Luther Billis in South Pacific, and Thanks. as of this time of the taping, it's resulted in a Drama Desk nomination. Exactly for you right, as well. So. Yeah, it's very nice. I'm very flattered. So I, I hope all of our audience gets a chance to come see you. Oh, the, I hope they the do. Performance. And maybe their last time for another 50 years to see South Pacific. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so get your tickets now. <laughs> it's great fun. It's not only great fun, it's beautiful. It's a, such a beautiful production. There's nothing else you can say. It's sublime. And there's a 30-piece orchestra, as I said before, with the original orchestra. And you see them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They aren't buried away somewhere in the, no, the room. No, no, they're they're taken seriously, and uh, it's important. And we have the great Ted Sperling uh, conducting this show every night. All right, well, Danny, I thank you so much for coming down and, and sharing so much, and being My so pleasure. candid with our listeners. My pleasure, Michael. And uh, best of luck with the rest of your, as your career moves forward. Thanks so much. Valley High may call you any As a quick note, that short little teaser we just heard of uh, Danny Burstein singing Bally High is only on the new cast album that is being sold at Barnes & Noble. It's exclusive to that store's uh, thing. So if you liked it, uh, be sure you pick up that one. 
The Callboard. Atlantic Theatre Company will debut the newest play from Tony Award nominee and Olivier Award winner Connor McPherson, Port Authority. The production, directed by Peter Wishcamper, went into previews on April 30th with an opening date of May 22nd. The cast will include Tony Award winner John Gallagher Jr., Tony nominee and future star of Shrek the Musical, Brian Darcy James, and Olivier winner Jim Norton. Next up, the monster from the new Bell Brooks musical, Young Frankenstein, will make his way to the Chatterbox on May 22nd. That's Seth Rudetsky's Broadway Chatterbox. The live talk show is hosted by Seth Rudetsky, and admission is a $10 donation to Equity Fights AIDS. The interview and live performance will take place at Don't Tell Mamas, a well-known nightclub in Midtown. Then, the country's only two-time Tony Award-winning theater company, Goodspeed, announced that they will be extending their run of the new musical Happy Days through July 4, 2008. The musical is based on the Paramount Pictures television series of the same name, has a book by the show's creator, Gary Marshall, and music and lyrics by Golden Globe winner and Grammy winner, Paul Williams. And it's back! And they're out for blood. The new version of Forbidden Broadway will return after a spring hiatus with its newest review which will feature some old favorites as well as a spoof on Patti Lapone and Gypsy, South Pacific, and Greece. You're the one that I hate. <laughs> this will mark the Drama Desk award-winning show's 15th year spoofing the best and worst of Broadway. As always, if you want to find out more information about the News and Callboard or anything in Broadway Bullet, we got links and show notes uh, for each episode at broadwaybullet.com. Just uh, click on the show notes page and you'll find uh, more information and links galore. And the Callboard is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues, at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved, and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. Up close. When you wish upon a star makes no difference who Well, I've waited a year. I've wanted to get Carrie Butler in the studio to talk to for so long. I've seen her, I think, about everything she's done. And we finally have got her here uh, to coordinate with uh, her brand new CD that uh, just came up. It's called Faith, Trust, and Pixie Dust. And Carrie Butler stars such shows as Xanadu and Bat Boy and uh, Little Shop of Horrors and uh, supporting role in Hairspray, a whole lot more, is here to talk. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, uh, you, you know, you you look, <laughs> you look so great. You look uh, you always look different every time. I've, I've bumped into you a few times. And you have a very changeable look. Yeah, I look really good now. I'm wearing like my baseball cap with my hair all up in pink curls and <laughs> the headphones over it. <laughs> well, the first thing on the menu clearly is your brand new CD. Yes, it's all Disney tunes and pretty much all Disney tunes or Disney inspired. Like one song is an actual Disney song, but it's called Disneyland. So. We thought we could slide it by. <laughs> <laughs> that screws the whole concept. I know. So, uh, what? This is your first solo CD. Yes, my first. So, what was it that made you finally decide that this was the time to? Put... Um. Well, uh, 
someone was interested. <laughs> um, no, but I just thought with the success of Xanadu that it just felt like the right time to do it. And um, PS Classics recorded our Xanadu album, and so then I met with them, and you know they seemed really excited to do my album. And I've kind of needed somebody. I've been wanting to do one for so long, but I needed somebody to like kick me, you know, <laughs> to do it. And uh, and then I met with Michael Kosrin, who I worked with on Beauty and the Beast. And we kind of weren't sure exactly what we are going to do. I knew I wanted to do Disney songs because I'm a huge Disney fanatic. And he was like, you know, so I thought, oh, I'll do this Broadway song, this Broadway song. And then Kaz was like, Carrie, why don't you just do an all Disney song? You love Disney. I said, you know what? You're right. I do love Disney. <laughs> and so so that's – and it, we, we but we kind of tried to make it a different spin on the songs and also um, – you know, I think I think for the people who don't like Disney, it's it's definitely like enough of a Broadway cast out. I mean, a Broadway out recording that they won't be like, "Ew, it's Disney." <laughs> so, who all did you work with? What was the process for you putting this together? Well, I would go over to Michael Kosrin's house, and you know, we would have uh, we would have songs to choose from, and you know, I, I would say, "I really want the ukulele because I love the ukulele." And so then he got um, Kevin Hewn come over. Why don't you just try out this song on the ukulele? And we would just practice singing it with the ukulele. And, you know, he brought over different guitars. And so it was just such a fun, creative process. And then, you know, oh, I wonder if this song would sound good, you know, with this song. And so it was so much fun. I loved doing it. I didn't think it would be that creative. You know, I thought it would kind of be like, oh, sure, I like this song. I'll sing this and this and this. But, you know, it, it was much more than that. So now the album just came out mm-hmm. on the 13th. Yes. So, and I understand that you're doing some charity stuff with this as well. Yes. I am um, donating some of the proceeds. We do this song called, well, I'm sure you know it, um, It's a Small World. We do like this slow version. Of- I haven't heard of that song. <laughs> what is that one? How does it go? We do a, a slow version of It's a Small World, and then we go into the song God Help the Outcasts, and I just felt like that I should do something more with the CD because the whole CD is about, you know, like faith and just, you know, I don't know, the good in people and stuff. And my daughter, I adopted a daughter from Ethiopia. So I am donating proceeds, some of the proceeds from the album to this group called World Vision. And um, they work specifically in Africa and specifically in Ethiopia and, um, you know, are trying to end global poverty 30,000 children a day die from co- from things that you know are preventable so that's what i'm doing all right well you want to take a listen here to one of the songs sure with us what uh, what one should we do first um maybe colors of the wind okay so any any story behind this song that you want to share um well actually there is a story um we didn't have any like princess songs on the album, and I was saying, cause I have to have some princess song. You know, the people who know me will be disappointed if I don't have something on there that's you know like princess, one of the Disney princesses. If it's a Disney album, and I said, um, you know, can we just do Colors of the Wind with just a guitar, really simple? And um, he was a little bit apprehensive, but then we did it and we finished, and he was like. That's it. That's perfect. So I love this track. Because this is kind of what I wanted in my album. I just wanted it really simple and acoustic. All right, let's take a listen. You think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim. 
But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. You think the only people who are people are the people who look and think like you. Steps of a stranger, you learn things you never knew, you never knew. Have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon? Harass the grinning bobcat, why he grinned? Can you sing with all the voices of the mountain? berries of the earth Come roll in all the riches all around you And for once, never wonder what they're worth The rainstorm and the river are my brothers The heron and the otter are my friends And we're all connected to each other In a circle in a hoop that never ends How high does a sycamore grow If you cut it down Then you'll never know And you'll never hear the wolf cry To the blue corn moon For whether we are white or copper skin We need to see of the wind You can own the earth and still All you'll own is earth Okay, I want to shift and talk about your current show for, mm-hmm. for a second, Xanadu. Yes. Uh, you, ju- you just signed on for some more? Yes, we just signed on until January. All five leads. 
Now I want to preface this with no big surprise. Before the show opened, I think Xanadu yeah, yeah. was the stuff of much scorn and ridicule and poof. Right. They can't really be doing this. Yeah. You know, I had Nightline did a story on us that was like this nice story, but then I can't remember the woman who was the anchor on that show. But then she goes, Xanadu opens on I don't remember what night we know, Saturday night. And we'll let you know when it closes. <laughs> and she I, got all these letters like, what are you saying? <laughs> I, I had one insider who I won't name, mm-hmm. but uh, you know the, the person. And, and uh, the person was telling me, oh, you know, they're just all doing it for a paycheck. You know? <laughs> 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 so, you know, was it so, someone in our show? No. Oh, okay. No, no. It will, wasn't. You, will you tell me when we're off the air? Yes, I will. <laughs> I will. I, and then lo and behold, it's funny and great, yeah. and, and the critics love it, and the audience love it, and you know, one of the biggest you know turnarounds, you know, I, th- I think in public perception in a long time. And yeah, yeah. I, mean, I definitely didn't expect it to be as big a hit as it was. I thought like, I thought some people would get it, and I thought some people like really wouldn't get it, but pretty much. Everybody kind of gets it. Some people get it, you know, a lot. <laughs> a lot, like a hundred times a lot. <laughs> so, and I really passed after watching the show this fall. I, I credit a lot of that to your very unique and impeccable comedic timing as an actress. That you, oh, thank that you. you. That you always illustrate. And which kind of leads me to the first question. You know, you do play a lot of the quirky different roles, you know, Bat Boy and, you know, Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors and, mm-hmm. you know, Penny in Hairspray, where you really completely stole the show yes. <laughs> <laughs> in the thing. And how much of that was that a conscious decision to head towards a lot of comedy? Or how did that persona and that kind of character stem uh, it up? Definitely, from you? It definitely wasn't a conscious decision. I think. You know, when you're starting out in as an actress, uh, it's hard enough. You kind of go wherever you get work, you know. And um, I guess Batboy kind of set it off. Uh, yeah, because I didn't do that much comedy before. Well, no, I did. I guess my first show was Ado Annie. Um, but, yeah, but I've done, you know, dramatic stuff. So I've done, um, you know, a wide variety of things. But then Batboy kind of put me on the map and then... Hairspray, and I mean, I would much rather if I'm doing musical theater, I'd much rather do somebody quirky than you know, like Lori in Oklahoma. You know, I I don't want to do like that boring ingenue, and if I am doing that boring ingenue, then I want to make her not boring and quirky. <laughs> <laughs> and like that's the same thing with Kira. When I was in Xanadu, like one of the first readings, the the one of the producers um, said to me, they're like. You you turned her into a character, like she's because I guess they they originally thought of her just as like the, this kind of goddess person, and so, you know, I I didn't know that that was just some something that I sort of did. I thought it was there in the writing too, but. <laughs> And I and I do think you know uh, Douglas Carter Bean. Douglas Carter Bean. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was Douglas and the Bean. I was facing on the middle <laughs> name there. Uh, yeah, did write. Oh I'm not gosh. a fan of Camp, and this was Camp done right. Right. Yeah. And and he really nailed the script. But I, mm-hmm. at the same time, I really feel I'm I'm glad you did sign on because I, it's hard for me to imagine what somebody else could do because I don't think anybody really has quite your, what you don't say, all your double takes and your oh, your no. looks and your. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, and your yeah second takes on the stage, um, but based with that, like, because there was a lot of you know negative buzz flying around yeah. beforehand. 
I mean, was that just completely just people second guessing, or did the show actually start off? And I mean, now that it's good and everybody knows it, I'm thinking maybe was there a point where the show was looking kind of stinky? No, and, and it was. Um, I think because people's just I think the perception comes strictly from the movie because even when I was offered to do the reading of it, I was like, really? <laughs> Are you really turning Xanadu into a Broadway show? And I just thought, you know, it's Christopher Ashley directing it, so I just said, okay, you know, I, I'll do whatever Chris wants me to do. So I did the reading and. The audience went crazy at the first, first, first reading of it. And my friends were there and they said, Carrie, I actually, I think this could be good. <laughs> and, you know, I'm in it. You lose all perspective when you're in something. And I was like, really? I said, yeah. <laughs> so so from, the, you know, they knew that they needed to do some work. But already at that reading, the audience was like dying, laughing and loving it. All right. So that's great. Now, some of the other stories. Uh what what did kind of lead into your into Bat Boy? I think from Bat Boy on, a lot of fans know your career. What, yeah. What let you, what was the stuff that led you into Bat Boy, the aspiring actress in New York? Um, well, my first job out of school was the European tour of Oklahoma, and I played Ado Annie. And um, because I was a lead, I got two bus seats on the bus, <laughs> and uh, we went all over Germany you know, like a different city every single night. And um, I can sing Oklahoma, Dinah, Felder, Vegan, Zick, and Wind. <laughs> um, but that was the only song in German. Everything else was in English. Uh, and then after that, I got Blood Brothers on Broadway. And I was an understudy in that. And I was in the en- then he moved me into the ensemble. And that's one of my favorite shows. So I loved doing that at the Music Box Theater. Another very underrated show. Yes, I love that show. Um, and then I did Beauty and the Beast. So I've been really, really lucky, you know, kind of going from show to show. I mean, I do have – I totally have breaks in between. You know, that's what I always tell, you know, students. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll go like six months without working at all. Um, but but I have been lucky. And I, I won't take tours and stuff like that because I just want to be here. So I think that helps me too because I'm always around for the, all the auditions. Now, with all the auditions, you done a lot, you do a lot of originating roles. And mm-hmm. that's a different kind of – networking and auditioning that takes place getting involved in those from the ground up, isn't it? I, well, I guess. I guess, uh, yeah, you, you, most of the time it starts out in the work in the workshop reading kind of phase. I mean, it takes a little sack. Of, I mean, there's a lot of Broadway actors who do lead after lead after lead as replacements. Right. And, like, never see, you know, the chance to originate something. And I'm guessing some of it has to be doing with your taking a gamble and being willing to, you know, sacrifice a little bit of pay up front and or, yeah, or how does I that... don't I don't I don't know. I think I think this business is um kind of trusting um what's what they've seen and so if I got one, to originate one role then they'll be like, "Oh, well she did good in that one. Let's give her another chance." You know, so I think that those other people just might not have been given the chance, but they they probably can do it. But, you know, it's like it's like Broadway. Broadway is this club. Once you get that first Broadway show, then you can go from show to show to show. But getting that first Broadway show is the hardest step. And where did you go to school? Where Ithaca, did you study? Upstate New York. And uh, who was your favorite professor with the program? Arno Selko. <laughs> I thanked him in one of my my bios. I think I think it was maybe Beauty and the Beast. I don't remember. <laughs> did you go through a period as a real struggling, starving actress after graduation, or? Um, I. I have been really lucky. Um, I would say the struggling came more from people telling me I was bad and things like that. Um, but I've been in the business since I was little, so I already you know, knew how the business worked and already had like agents kind of connections. 
I paid for my college with money I made from commercials. So I could always fall back on doing TV commercials. Um, and, <laughs> um, and like I said, I, my first job was Oklahoma. And fr from then, I pretty much have worked steadily, knock on this chair. <laughs> um, you know, I haven't, I haven't had to do anything else. I, I've worked steadily as an actress. At least, but you know, I'm also like, I'm willing to do almost anything. <laughs> you know, like a lot of times I'll spend you know six months just doing voiceovers. I would say even before Xanadu, I think it was a long time before I, I, I think it was a big break I had between Xanadu and what was my show before that, Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, I would think yeah. it, it was at least a year. I would think probably more. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, you definitely go through uh, times. But you know, how many Broadway shows are there? I think that's with most actors. You can't. Most actors can't be on Broadway every single year and every single season. Well, and I know you've been doing some TV recently too, which we'll cover actually in one of the fan questions. We took some. Okay, we right. took some suggestions for questions from fans on our Facebook fan page, and we'll get to that after we listen to another song from your CD. Uh, do you have a? We're going to play now. When uh, this is when she loved me. Um, is that yes? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any stories behind uh, putting this song together? Well, um, when we were rehearsing this, I actually um, I didn't have my babysitter one day, and so I had my daughter with me, and she she's sitting on my hip as as we're I'm singing it with Kaz at the piano, and all of a sudden, you know, the song in the movie is about the doll and the doll singing to the little girl. Yeah, so Toy Story Two, right from Toy Story Two. And so here I have my daughter on my lip, hip, and I'm like, oh my gosh, one, one day Seggy might not like me. And so all of a sudden I'm like crying, singing in this song. And so it had like a whole new meaning for me. <laughs> all right, so let's take a listen and we'll get to our fan questions right after this. When somebody loved me, everything was beautiful. Every hour spent together lives within my heart and when she was sad I was there to dry her tears and when she was happy so was I when she Like she loved me 
a few fan questions for our Facebook fan page. Uh, we're going to be doing this occasionally with other actors, so make sure you go there and become a fan so you can get the updates and find out. So uh, the first question for you, uh, we're kind of related to what we were talking about just before the song. Elena Marmo from North Jersey, New Jersey, asks, I, I like to do voices. <laughs> I'm not making fun of the people no. just so they know. It's just fun to like put a voice in the character. So, <laughs> Is it a nice break from Broadway when you're doing television? Or is it hard to manage? And that's Elena Marmo. Uh, I would say it is a nice break from Broadway. Although when I did Lipstick Jungle, I was doing um, I was doing them both at the same time. So sometimes I would have to, you know, be up early in the morning, get all nervous around five o'clock, like that my she- scenes aren't shot yet, and because I had to go make the show. Um, but it's definitely. Good to get out of that eight show a week rut. <laughs> you know, not that I don't love what I'm doing. I totally love it. But every once in a while, you're just like, oh, I need to do something else. <laughs> I can't concentrate on Xanadu anymore. <laughs> but only every once in a while. <laughs> All right. And then you come back to Xanadu even more refreshed. Yeah, yeah. it's not, you know, especially when you're doing the same thing night after night. Exactly. And then, and actually, when I was on Lipstick Jungle, um, Timothy Busfield was the director, remember, from 30-something? And yeah. he was awesome. And so he was like, Carrie, you know, just bring it down, bring it down. <laughs> and um, and then he's like, he would, he, he was like, you can bring this to um, your show at Xanadu. You know, you don't always have to, uh, you know, give so much to the audience, you know, make it more like TV acting. And I did. And some of my jokes landed even more. So it helped my, it helps your, they all help each other. <laughs> All right. Next question is from April Nash, and uh, she's from Leicester. I don't know if that's a city or a school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just can't wait to hear what April's voice is going to sound like. Uh, hey, I'm a huge <laughs> fan. First heard you on Bad Boy and thought you were fantastic. <laughs> what made you want to be an actress? Was there anything else you would have been interested in doing? Are you pleased? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I always knew I wanted to be an actress, although... Because um, my mom put me in to do commercials when I was four years old and to ma- earn money for college. And my sister did it and some of my cousins did it. But it was only just while we were little. And then I was the only one who kept begging to let me continue doing it. Um, but she wanted me to have a normal childhood. So I stopped doing it. But then I saw Annie when I was like nine. And then then I was completely gone. And she let me audition for Annie. And I didn't get it. So I learned about rejection very early on. I made it to like, 
I got I got like three callbacks, I think. Or no, I mean I think I made it to the final callbacks for Annie, but then didn't get it. Um but I knew then that that's what I wanted to do. Okay, now the other part of the question was uh, oh, I think okay. one of the most interesting parts. Was there anything else that you, you know, could be interested in doing, which I think the word of advice that I've always heard and I still kind of always give anybody going into the arts is, man, if you can think of anything else you really want to do, just do that. Yeah, I think it's, it is true. Um, yeah, there was something in me that always knew that this is what I had to do. Um, you know, now that growing up, I kind of thought, well, I could also, I love kids. I, maybe I could be a pre-kindergarten teacher because that's what my mom did. Um, but I always knew that this is what, what I had to do. You know, like there was no question that, that I was, whether or not I was going to do this. And now I kind of think at some point I might want to be a social worker too. And I, I have um, done stuff with that too. Because sometimes it just gets like, I don't know, I don't want it to be all about me and, as, and being an actor, you know, it's so like... <laughs> All about you. <laughs> <laughs> I know most like people I know in acting and music are like attention hogs. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So it's a little much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next question is from uh, Rianne Matthews from Lyon Senior High School, um, and she says, "As an actress, <laughs> I know that a personal attachment is often made with the characters we portray. Especially, we have some common ground with them or admire them in some way." Is there any role in particular that you connected to above the others? If so, why? Uh, uh, I would say I really, really connected with Penny from Hairspray because growing up I was a total nerd and um, geek. And so I added all of her dancing uh, (laughs) and clumsiness. That was all me. Um, and I just and I loved Penny too because she just had such a good imagination so it was such a fun part to play because because I kind of set everything up I could change it every night you know sometimes I would have like my own little puppet show going on underneath the chalkboard and and, I, and it would just be different every single night so that was really really fun but I do always feel like the characters I play um, affect me and sometimes for good and sometimes for bad like when I did Opposite of Sex I was a little miserable to be around because <laughs> I was just like all grumpy. <laughs> yeah, I, I do say that Penny is the number one most robbed. Oh my God, I could not believe you were not nominated for a Tony. I keep thinking you were. I always do. I, I look, I see you weren't, and then I forget. <laughs> I forget again and go, yeah, she was nominated. No. Nope. And thanks. You know, I thought the movie was good. This is on a side note. Uh-huh. But, uh But uh, they really. Cut up Penny's part. Yeah. And I, I want. Do you have any thoughts as to maybe why that happened on film? I don't. I no. I really don't know. I thought maybe. Um, you know, Amanda Bynes, who I love. Like I think she's hilarious. When, I was so excited when I heard that she was playing my part. Um, but I feel like maybe she's in a part in her, her career where she wants to look good, and you know, with Penny, you just you can't look good. You have to just go for like being all gawky and nerdy and. You know, and and so maybe that's why. Maybe she didn't want to put herself in, you know, that kind of bad position. And so then it wasn't as funny, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, things, I, was, I was also, like, stunned that Mom, they cut Mom, I'm a Big Girl Now. From, I know. That's a great song. Yeah. But it's in the credits, at least. Yeah. But stage-wise, it's just one thing in Hairspray is when I first saw it is I thought, you know, there's, like, five truly magical you know, combinations of the song and the staging and, yeah. and creativity of how they really made it work. And, I, and that was one of the songs that I thought was the 
the, one of the big standouts in the show, and I was just kind of stunned to see that mm-hmm. that disappear. Was that the one where they put their heads through the the wall? Yeah, yeah, I loved that part. <laughs> That's funny. So um, let's see. Oh, here's a guy. I can do a guy. Uh, Dan Romero asks, uh, "Yo, why uh, in a couple of weeks?" You'll be at the anniversary of Xanadu's first preview. Congratulations. (laughs) Looking back, was there any point that you thought that the show might not last to this point? We kind of discussed it. And what has kept the show fresh for you for so long? Uh, Yeah, we already discussed about the show. But uh, what's kept the show fresh for me? Well, every once in a while I have to go back in and remember – like go back through my notes that I wrote and remember why I'm doing what I'm doing because it is definitely hard to stay fresh and it's harder in Xanadu than in other shows just because there's so much distractions like with the audience on stage and being on skates and talking in a language I don't really speak (laughs) so I had to I have to go back and realize and then when we have um, really dead audiences I play a game where (laughs) um, I'm not allowed to do any of my normal choices so so that kind of keeps it fresh because then I'm like because then you actually you know if you know because on those dead audiences you know I'm like there's no way I'm going to make them laugh so I may as well just use this time to experiment and you find some (laughs) you find good things doing that but it's scary but you find new things. That, that, on a side note with that, mm-hmm. how much do the skates bring in an element of uh, freshness or unpredictability? Uh, yeah, you always have to <laughs> be on your toes because, um, yeah, every day I'm constantly like eagle eye over the stage, making sure there's no debris or anything. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you'll be like, oh, my God, glow stick overboard. You, know? <laughs> you, like, freak out about things. So, yeah, you definitely have to stay in it. It's it's challenging, to say the least. And, you know, I've fallen hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'll start with that. At the very beginning of the show, there were a there was a lot of things. Cheyenne Jackson was the lead, but then he hurt. Then he no, hurt him. James Carpinello was the James lead. James Carpinello yeah. was the lead. Then he hurt himself. Right. Cheyenne Jackson came in. And there was an understudy that filled in a couple times there, too. Yeah. So I know right at the beginning of the run, it was like three different guys a lot. Four. Four. Yeah. <laughs> did, how uh, tricky did that make things on your end? Well, um, going on with, the, you know, obviously, you know, losing people to skating injuries was heartbreaking. But then once we were in the swing of it, having the different, all the different guys kind of helped me as my muse because, you know, that's my goal to inspire uh, people. And so I was just inspiring all these different actors going on a sunny. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it just made it much more real because I'm like, yes, that's the right line. Yes, you got it. (laughs) And a final question from our listeners. Uh, This one is a good for all those aspiring actors out there. Your, Your own take on this time-honored question and Hannah James from San Diego Christian School wants to know what are ways to stand out positively at an audition how would you treat a callback different from an audition uh for an audition you know I would definitely try and choose a song that everybody else isn't doing I always try and pick a song that's kind of uh like the part I'm auditioning for um, so for Hairspray, I chose this song, Gee Whiz, which is this 50 song, and I made up this whole scene going on where I'm singing to this guy, and then he looks at me, and then I have a coughing fit, and then I go back and look at him again, and okay, he's not looking at me, so I like make up this, so you know, you can, you can change songs around. You can use, I, I like to use songs that 
you know, would never be right for me or and just, you know, do a play on words in the song. So if you can be clever, I think that's something that can make you stand out. And for a callback, well, usually a callback is just different because they give you the material from the actual show. So that would be the only thing. So then you're doing something completely different. But other than that, if you get a callback, then I would just do what you did the first time because if they liked it the first time, they'll give you notes if they want you to switch it around. All right. So, uh, And that's my advice. <laughs> some great advice for all the youngsters out there. <laughs> so, again, want to remind everybody, your uh, CD, Faith, Trust, and Pixie Dust, mm-hmm. just at the shops, online, in stores, everywhere, right? Uh, I think so. I know it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I don't know where. And Xanadu, how, Xanadu, Xanadu store. <laughs> <laughs> so I thank you so much for coming down and chatting and, and telling us about various things you know that's been going on in your career. I'm, I'm a fan. I look forward to. Uh, we're, we're taping this pre Tony announcements. Uh, I don't want to jinx anything, uh, but uh, this time is yours. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, thanks for coming down. Thank you so much. Have a great week promoting in Whirlwind. I know you got a lot of events that are going to happen before this airs. You're doing the Barnes & Noble. Yes, yes. And all the stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. And you're running off to perform in about 10 minutes. I am. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. If your heart is in your dream, no request is to Capathia Jenkins and Lewis Rosen have been working together as a performance team on the New York cabaret circuit for a while now, and they've put together a fabulous pairing of, uh, in a new CD, One Ounce of Truth, which is the Nikki Giovanni songs, and uh, she's a poet. Uh, Lewis did the music, set the music to it, and it's now a 13-track CD out on PS Classics. We do have the lovely Capathia Jenkins and oh, I'll say, the lovely Lewis well, Rosen here <laughs> in the studio. How are you guys doing? Hello. <laughs> I was wondering, were you going to say the not so lovely <laughs> Lewis Rosen? <laughs> so um, first off, I know you're also doing some. You're in the middle of doing some Joe's Pub gigs, and yes, uh, people listen really quickly to this. They might have a chance to catch the very last one of your mm-hmm. series, right. but um, tell us a little bit about what, how this CD and everything about this concept came together. You go, Louie. This is actually the fourth uh, full piece that uh, I've written for CJ and I to perform. Um, I'm CJ, by the that's way. That's CJ. Yeah. Capathia Jenkins, yes. take two. CJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, after our first record, which was uh, is called Southside Stories. Uh, I had already uh, gotten the rights to uh, set Nikki Giovanni's uh, poems. Now, Nikki Giovanni is one of the most famous and acclaimed American poets. But if Oprah loves her, Oprah oh, yeah. loves her. She's yeah. one of Oprah's uh, <laughs> That's right, one twenty-five of living legends. legends. Yeah, yeah. And if uh, if she wasn't, I mean, but her being that actually 
combined with the fact that many people still don't really know who she is, suggests kind of the unfortunate uh, lack of the way poetry is penetrating the culture today. So the first piece I had written for uh, Capathia was uh, on Langston Hughes songs, on Langston Hughes poems. And then we did a Maya Angelou cycle. And then the third one I wrote music and lyrics for, South Side Stories. And all the while, I had uh, Nikki Giovanni's poetry in mind. Nikki writes with a wonderful sense of the vernacular, just everyday language, but still rich with imagery. You can tell that she's a poet who listened a lot to rhythm and blues and mm -hmm. soul music and jazz. And the words su ult suggest uh, they just want to be sung once you really tune into their rhythms. And she's got a great spirit, a wonderfully generous spirit. She's someone who uh, began her work as a, a kind of angrier black voice in the late 60s and you know kind of railing against the injustice of the time and she hasn't lost that edge but she's also mellowed a lot and mm -hmm. part of what really attract me, attracted me and that I thought would be great for Capathia was she can write about love in ways that are wonderful in relationships she's really funny really and, funny yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, and so the last uh, set of songs we did, South Side Stories, was more intense. And this one seemed to be our version of uh, a lighter time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and uh, although it, too, ends up taking you through a kind of journey th from uh, relationships in progress, suddenly over, dealing with the aftermath, the sense of uh, the life cycle, children, uh, the title song, One Ounce of Truth, tr uh, deals with aging and the sense of how one is going to die and how one wants to be remembered. So uh, Nikki's a wonderful poet, and she was terrifically generous about giving us rights to the poems and yeah. supporting the project. And it's just been a joy to work on. Yeah. And, of course, I have the great benefit of writing always knowing that with the only occasional exception when I might sing a song myself, <laughs> I've got the best singer on the planet who's going to be singing these songs. Thank and you, Louis. Well, That's really nice. You know I mean it. But Capathia, <laughs> I mean, and you're not just on the cabaret circuit. You do a lot of New York stage, including I'm after hearing the cast album for Martin Short's Fame Become Me, yeah. I instantly was horrified that I missed the production <laughs> because... Your rendition of A Big Black Lady Stops the Show mm -hmm. on that CD uh, <laughs> is still on heavy rotation on my iPod. And, you know, um, amazing vocal, great humor in the truth of, of that song, I think, too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I had the best time doing that show and working with Marty and, and Mark Shaman and all those guys. And they're all so funny and, and all that. And we had such a great time. And, you know, what's, what's great about that group of people is they came out and supported us at Joe's Pub. Marty was there opening night when we did Southside Stories. Right. And then I he bought the CD and he I went into the theater and he's like, it's on my iPod, it's on my iPod. <laughs> I'm listening, I'm listening. So, you know, it's great to have those kind of experiences um, 
on Broadway, you know, in this Broadway New York community. I love it. And uh, and people are now embracing me with Louis and this thing that we're doing together. And it's just, you know, it's an exciting thing for, for us. Yeah, we've been lucky. Yeah. We've, been we've been doing really it lucky. about yeah. three years. And, uh, you know, things seem to be growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, one thing that made me laugh about Marty Short was that he then went on our MySpace page and wrote a hysterical <laughs> bit as Jiminy Glick. As Jiminy Glick, yeah. <laughs> Which we took as the ultimate, you know, validation <laughs> of our work. Yes. Awesome. Well, before we continue this interview, I, we got a very special treat for all of our listeners, and that you guys are going to perform live here. Yes. Yes. Yeah, this is one of the first songs uh, of the set that I wrote, uh, and it's one of the purest love songs uh, on the CD or that I've really ever written. It's mm-hmm. called The Moon Shines, the moon shines Down. Down. Yep. And, and who's that quiet man on the big bass sitting there in the corner? Oh, that's Dave Phillips. Dave Phillips is an arranger, a composer in his own right, and I I say he's a badass on the bass. That's my nickname for him, Badass Dave. Uh, but but he's fantastic. He brings such a collaborative spirit to what Louie and I are doing, and we're just happy to have him on the record and here live today and at the shows at Joe's Pub. <laughs> we don't ever want to perform without him. That's right. right. Are you guys ready to sing? Yes. All right. the night 
the next question I have for you after that performance, Capathia, this might be somewhat obvious, but I, I'm always interested to find people's takes. What do you find the biggest difference for yourself career-wise in terms of going for the Broadway and the off-Broadway roles as an actress-singer mm-hmm. and uh, doing your uh, cabaret shows with Lewis? Um, as, a, as an actor... Um I'm, I think I'm fortunate to have the ability to act. I I don't find that there is really much difference in communicating a song. I think you have to be an actor first to really communicate. And, uh, you know, in terms of the stage and sort of, you know, vying for a role, it's sort of trying to fit myself into this... Uh, mold or whatever a director or producer is looking for. But with Louis and I, one of the reasons why I wanted to collaborate with him and do our own thing is because I just, you know, sometimes you just want to be yourself and show what you do and let people sort of come to you. And um, and Louis writes so beautifully. Um, the music, I, I literally can sing the ink off the page and, and convey it to an audience and just really chew into the lyric and tell the story. And that's just what's important to me. And that, for me, is across the board, whether I'm, you know, some character in a, in a musical or in a play or I'm doing this, this music. The lyric comes first for me always. Um, yeah, but I have to say, right now, my first love is this, just sort of putting ourselves out there and, and having people come to, come to us and come to the music and be enthusiastic about it and excited about it is, is a thrill like no other. It's because it's it's like us giving birth to our own thing, right? It's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now, one of the things that leads to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on this, about Big Black Woman Stops the Show, mm-hmm. that makes it so funny is, in a lot of ways, the, the real truth of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of the lyric. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm wondering, as you pursue your acting career, mm-hmm. how much of the truth of that song has hit you in what you get cast, what you don't get cast, parts you've wanted to play? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'll tell you a story. Just before (laughs) that came about, I had just had a conversation with my agent saying, you know, I don't want to go for any more big mama roles and, (laughs) you know, bring the roof down, mama gospel finale songs. Um, I just I just didn't want to do that anymore. It's it's it it wasn't um, interesting and it wasn't feeding my creativity and all that stuff. Literally, I finished talking to him and Mark Shaman called me and said, (laughs) we wrote this thing for you. We know you have a sense of humor. Just please listen and, you know, let us know what you think. And he sent me the the demo of him singing it, by the way. (laughs) And by the time he got to the first refrain, I was like, I'll do it. I'll do it because it was making fun of the very thing I had just complained about. You could have so, written it yourself. I know. I could have written it myself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that that has been, you know, for me and, and, and my peers in the business, it is it is like that a lot of the time. And so you have to sort of say no and wait for that special thing that, that's coming down the pipe. See, Capathia so. can do so much more than that. Uh, the work we're doing together, uh, w- you know, we've been fortunate where we've gotten – Terrific reviews. Mm -hmm. Uh, We actually, knock on wood, we haven't gotten a bad one yet. And what they all say, they all comment on the variety, the broad range of the 
uh, musical style that we've embraced. And and it's jazz and it's blues. And a little pop in there. Little pop, yeah. a little pop, a little <laughs> bit of American roots in there. And Carpathia can sing it all. And so the, the almost injustice of uh, how a lot of uh, black actors and singers are uh, treated by being pushed into these very, very narrow uh, cubbyholes within the theater uh, is highlighted by the freedom with which I think she, uh, we're able to uh, move mm-hmm. between genres. And that's not to say that we're derivative. I mean, in it's, I don't think we are. I think it's a blending of styles and such, but that her range can take it all in. And I sing every now and then just to, <laughs> just to give her a rest. <laughs> yes, I, you do. I, and yes, I'm enough do. of a hand bone where you know, I like to do a few songs. Right. <laughs> now, one thing, especially um, not only with uh, Nikki Giovanni, but um, you've worked with some other poets. Mm-hmm. That's how much interaction did you have with Nikki Giovanni? I, I'm guessing poetry is a very different thing in general than lyric writing. Mm-hmm. And so how much well, rain did you take or how much did you work the, with that? The, the goal for me and what has attracted me to the poets that I've set when I'm not writing my own lyrics is that they all write in a very natural, direct use of the American-sounding English language. And the they should sound when we sing them like lyrics. And that's one of the greatest compliments that we've been getting on the songs, which Mm -hmm. is if people didn't know who Nikki was, they would just assume that Nikki's some lyricist and we got together and we wrote a set <laughs> yeah, this of really, does, This doesn't feel like, really like some arty thing where they just, Not oh, we're going to set a com- uh, poet's exactly lyric. Exactly right. right. But did you have to work with like picking out, okay, what's the chorus? Do we repeat? Did you well, have that, to do some Not with finessing? Nikki. You know, Nikki uh, gave us the rights to the poems and then it was my job to uh, make songs out of them. So a lot of the craft of doing it is exactly what you just suggested. Looking at choosing poems, understanding how to shape them within the, what we could say are boundaries of popular song form, but those boundaries are loose enough where there's nothing formulaic about it. And, uh, and she's great. She, once she heard the, the uh, songs, she loved them. She wrote a beautiful, Kind of liner note, liner note in the for CD, us. CD, which is you know, so of, generous. Yeah, and like give, giving us her blessing. Yeah. Also, we should say the CD is quite different than what uh, we're performing for you here today because we've got a fantastic band. We've mm-hmm. got Kim Grigsby on piano, and Dave is playing bass. A terrific uh, saxophone and flute player named Andrew Sturman. Uh, and then Rob Moose. Rob Moose, the boy wonder. I know, on the violin. What did he play on the CD? The he, violin he played violin on the CD, yeah. it, but he's playing violin and electric guitar with us and at Joe's, Joe's Pub. Pub. Yeah. We had Kevin Kuhn playing electric guitar. Uh, we had Eric Charleston playing drums and, and, vibes. and vibes and marimba. And marimba, right. And Glenn Drews, one of the great trumpet players in New York, playing. Mm-hmm. So we had an all-star band, and it's a very rich uh kind of palette of instruments yeah. that, that I uh, drew from to arrange the songs. All right. Well, with that all said, maybe we should do our next live performance here. Okay. Any, anything to set up this next song that well, you're going to perform? You know, I, I'll <laughs> say something that I said live. When I first played this song for my wife, and 
playing it for my wife, Charlotte, is always an important step along the birth of a song. And uh, Char listened to this one and said, boy, I, you know why I like that song? Because so often people are singing about romance or love and what they really mean is they're s singing about sex, but they're not saying it. This song is about sex, <laughs> but because it's so clearly about sex, it's about so much more. It's right. about the life force and how to live one's life. So yeah. this is That Day. All right, ready? <laughs> yes, let's do it. If you've got the key, I've got the door. Let's do what we did when we did it before. If you've got the time, I've got the way. Let's do what we did when we did it that day. If you've got the dough, I've got the heat. We can use my oven till it's warm and sweet. We can do it on the floor. We can do it on the stair. We can do it on the couch. We can do it in the air. Oh, I know I'm bold coming on like this. But the good things in life are too good to be missed. Now time is money and money is sweet. If you're busy, baby, we can do it on our feet. <laughs> if we do it once a month, we can do it in time. If we do it once a week, we can do it in rhyme. If we do it every day, we can do it every way. We can do it like we did when we The good things in life are too good to be missed. Now time is money, and money is sweet. If you're busy, baby, we can do it on our feet, on our feet. If we do it once a month, we can do it in time. If we do it once a week, we can do You, this is like said, your third or fourth collaboration together. This How is our fourth collaboration, mm -hmm. our second CD. How yeah. did you come together to work together so tightly to begin with? Oh, initially, uh, Louis was looking for a female singer for the Langston Hughes Project. And at the time, I was doing a workshop for 
The Look of Love. The Look of Love, Broadway show. And uh, my musical director, David Loud, recommended me to Louis. And so we started working together, and I immediately loved the music and the way he can write a melody and all that. So I was like, this is great, this is great. And one day outside, after we finished, Louis said to me, I think I'd like to write for you. And I thought— And maybe we could go in and perform somewhere. Yeah, yeah, right. And I said, oh, that's great. That sounds great. But in the back of my mind, honestly, I was thinking, okay, whatever. You know, people say that and you never hear from them again, whatever. And then Capathia got a gig where the Bravo Network asked her to come in and do 20 minutes for some big party for all the honchos oh, where they right, were announcing their right. new season. And she she asked me if I'd play for her. Now, I, I I'm... You know, when I play within myself on the piano, I'm not bad. But I figured if anybody was nuts enough to ask me to go play for them, <laughs> we might really have a relationship. And then the stuff we did was rhythm and blues and soul music, yeah. in addition to just one of my songs. And I realized, oh, that's what she really likes. And, and so that's what made me think... I had thought about setting Maya Angelou poems right. for a while, mm -hmm. but one often needs a reason to take the chunk of time that would do it. And suddenly I had my reason. So then a few months later. Yeah, a few months later he called and said, listen, I've started to set Maya Angelou. Come over and take a listen. And immediately I was just in love. I was just excited with the prospect of, you know, literally having stuff written for me. It's just an honor and a privilege and all that good stuff. And he challenges me, too. And I say, oh, okay, ooh, this is really high, oh, oh. And he goes, I did that, darling, because I know you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some songs I've written, like one of the songs in uh, the Giovanni uh, set, I Want to Sing, has more than a two-octave range. And there's not a chance I would have written a song that way if I wasn't writing it for Capathia. And the joy of it, though, is that when she does it, it seems effortless. <laughs> well, it, it, it's not pyrotechnics. It's not vocal mm. acrobatics. Mm -hmm. It's just the subtlest, most beautiful thing. Also, for me, it was fun when we did uh, first started because when I realized, oh, you know, see, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. So growing up with uh, just blues around me and a lot of soul music and rhythm and blues, it's just I hadn't been had that many opportunities to just really express that. So that door just opened. <laughs> Speaking and of that, I actually find it refreshing that your press release honestly said, she has a great, you know, unflawed two-octave vocal range. I love that because every time I see all the pop singers release their press statements going, you know, Mariah Carey's amazing six-octave vocal range. Like, well, oh my God, that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps that means she can play six octaves on the piano. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> a, a full oct uh, you know, a full voice, two octave vocal range is indeed amazing. Oh, it is amazing. <laughs> if, if you can go more than an octave and a fourth, or an mm -hmm. octave and a fifth, you're you're, you're a strong vocalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but also again, it's a kind of wonderful effortlessness. 
Uh, you know, that gullible public. You know, Mariah Carey says five, so Christina Aguilera has to say six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, Madonna's got a few octaves there. Right, she's off the charts. Yeah, maybe she's piano. got a nine octave ring, even though the piano doesn't quite go there. Right, right. Maybe that's why we can't always hear it. It's just in the range where dogs hear it. Where dogs hear it, right. <laughs> Is it, I don't mean I don't mean to be putting down either Madonna or Mariah Carey. Quite Absolutely the contrary. Not. Listen, I've danced to their music <laughs> many a day. Oh yeah, I, I like the songs, but just the whole PR nonsense sure. of yeah. uh, of their ranges. <laughs> and, and I write too, and I'm like, you know, that's just. Yeah, it's, I like I said, I just cringe every time I see it. I, honestly, I was when I saw the press release. Yeah. No bullshit. Just said. Your amazing talent as it was, I'm going, ah, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> we should exaggerate more. <laughs> she can stand on her head oh, and geez. do a two octave <laughs> range song. Oh, After gosh. having just done 14 push ups. Oh, my God. Well, a couple quick questions uh, to kind of wrap this up. A little off topic, but um, I'll ask this of you too, Lewis, on, on your end as a writer. But, Capathia, for uh, a young aspiring singer, actress, you know, coming mm -hmm. to New York, either for theater or wanting to do something outside of the, you know, traditional pop record label mechanism. Mm -hmm. What kind of would your be, be your advice for how to, how to pursue things? Or what did you do how, early on before you had the contacts? Well, I tell you, early on, I just, uh, I just worked as much as I could. And sometimes, you know, working just means literally getting in a room with other musicians or other actors and working. Sometimes there's no paycheck at the end. Um, like my agent says, you know, they're offering a Metro card and a cheese sandwich. Um, and, you know, it really is Did he take 10% of the cheese sandwich? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. But, you know, it really is about the work. And I, I just believe that opportunity will come you don't have to chase opportunity it'll come if you prepare yourself so constantly prepare constantly stay open be malleable do whatever it takes out here you'll see people you know running around chasing their tails stay true to yourself you know I mean that's what I did and sometimes I literally just had to sit quiet you know on my couch and go okay what do I want to do Okay, well, I know I don't want to do that, and I know I don't want to do that. This is what I want to do. I'm going to focus on this and focus all my energy, you know, into this thing that Louie and I are doing and, you know, and really just being true to myself. That's it's the most important thing you can do because ultimately, as a singer, as an actress in this business, that's really all you have is who you are. That's what makes you unique. That's what separates you from everybody else out here trying to do this thing. So that that's what I say. That's my, my advice. What you do know, you think? Well, before I'll offer what my first advice would okay. be, something about what you just said. Mm -hmm. One has to understand that, for instance, what we're doing is very unique. There's not another singer in New York who has teamed up, not on an occasional basis, but in a steady collaboration with another composer. And it shows you the depth of commitment that Capathia has. And you wouldn't believe how many things she actually does say no to. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, first, the first thing that I would say is if there was anything else you think you could do in your life and be happy, you should probably do it. <laughs> yeah, <that's what> <laughs> yeah, because yeah. It's, a, it's a tough road. And it it's, takes tremendous amount of effort, patience, 
will, not to mention talent and such. And uh, if you can envision yourself having another life, then you probably should because you may not have what it would take to tough it out. You know, when Capathia and I first started working, even people, people really were loving what we were doing, and yet we were getting comments like, well, it doesn't seem like we can easily categorize it. Mm-hmm. Is it pop? Is it, is it jazz? jazz? Is, is it, what is it? Is it yeah. art song? You know? And re- we just got two reviews for the Joe's Pub thing, and they both, in the most positive way, the Times and Bloomberg said, well, the work is uncategorizable. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, and yeah, that's what we that's say. What, right. And so in, ultimately, by seeing through what we really want to do, we seem to be making a genre of no genre. Right. And ultimately, that's just a, a reflection of we're doing what we really care about and what we believe in. And we're just very fortunate to have found each other. Yeah. I need her. She needs me mm-hmm. in a way that we're kind of musical soulmates. So we're really quite lucky. Yeah. So um, what other things songwriting-wise have you done before this teaming or in, in terms of your career as a songwriter? Well, I used to write much more for the theater. And ever since uh, Capathia and I have been uh, working together, I have just largely been on an extended hiatus. Uh, (laughs) In the 1990s, a musical I wrote called Book of the Night was directed by Bob Falls at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And then it was later done here in a small off-Broadway production, uh, another musical called A Child's Garden was done in 2000 here, right actually across the street. Uh, and I, I wrote a lot of scores. I seem to gain a reputation of being someone who can set words well. So I was hired often to, in working on classical plays at places like Saddle Rep, the Guthrie, Shakespeare Theater, the Goodman, where I uh, wrote a lot of songs and scores for Shakespeare plays and Brecht, uh, Ibsen's Per Gint, you know, uh, work like that, but uh, and and I have one uh, musical theater piece actually uh, completed that uh, Doug Hughes is supposed to direct an adaptation of uh, John Steinbeck's The Pearl, but I have to find some time away from uh, what we're doing to uh, <laughs> finish that up. And Doug wrote such a lovely liner yeah, Doug note for wrote our it beautiful. CD. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Yeah, you know what's, what we loved about that if for folks who buy the CDs, that our idea was that we feel a lot of what we're doing has a rather timeless quality. It's not old style, but also not necessarily of some current fashion moment. Mm -hmm. And the look of the CD and the liner note all evokes a kind of early 60s kind of jazz record. Doug was... he said he was channeling his best Ralph Gleason or Nat Hentoff <laughs> in, in writing the liner note. It's an unusual one because he talks about every song. Every song, yeah. And, yeah. and he was had has great ears. So uh, it, it, the package that P.S. Classics and Tommy Krasker and Philip uh, Chafin put together is really quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right, and once again, the CD is called One Ounce Truth, and it's out now. Uh, Capathia Jenkins, Lewis Rosen, the Nikki Giovanni songs. Yes. Thank you guys so much for coming down and, and sharing your music and, and yourselves with our listeners. Thank, Thank you, you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you luck. for having us. On the boards. 
a show about 20-somethings trying to connect and find meaning in their lives through movies. Cinephilia is opening soon here in New York, and we've got Katie Capiello, uh, one of the actors and producer for the show, and director Michael Silverstone here with us to discuss the show. How are you guys doing? We're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Look like deer cotton headlights. <laughs> oh, we're on. <laughs> so, uh, well, kind of the first thing, just I always start things off with, is tell us a little bit about the show, Cinephilia. Okay. <laughs> do, you wanna, do you wanna go for it? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, at a, on a very basic level, the, the, the show is about these, um, these four characters who are essentially stuck in this sort of 25, 26, 27 year old time frame of not quite, um, you know, uh, being part of college or part of that sort of community and also not quite an adult. So the cat, the show sort of catches them um, in this uh, sort of transitional phase, and and what it's looking at is um, a complicated relationship, a love relationship um, between two characters who are hopelessly connected to each other, and also desperate to break free of each other. Uh, meanwhile, they are um, obsessed with film, and that's that's the thing that kind of locks them to each other. So essentially the play is, is a, about an 80-minute glimpse into um, the, uh, the intensity of, of what this phase is like and what this relationship is and their attempts to kind of wrestle out of it more than anything else. Yeah. So Katie, what, what drew you to this play as a producer and, and made you want to take on the, the double role of acting and producing? <laughs> well, you know, there has been this cinephilia buzz, I think, traveling around for years now. It's a play that Leslie Headland, the playwright, wrote about four years ago, and she's been workshopping in New York and in L.A. Um, with Tisch School of the Arts alumni for, for about four years. So we kind of heard of the play, and um, the Tisch circle is actually pretty small, so there are a bunch of us here in New York and then a bunch of us here in LA and word spreads pretty quickly. So one of our founding members is actually also a member of a pretty prominent theater company in LA called IAMA that Leslie Headland is a part of. He asked if he could read some of her work and got a glimpse of Cinephilia, said you need to submit this to the company, we would love to do it. The rest of the company got their hands on it. They read through it. We all fell in love with it immediately, and um, the rest is history. So I guess, you know, our goal as a company is to not only support kind of up-and-coming playwrights and directors and producers and actors, but also to work with our friends. And um, we cast from the company um, first and foremost, and um, we kind of knew this is something we were going to have to do. We always wear more than one hat, so <laughs> producing and acting and whatever, anything else. Set building, I'm sure. So, <laughs> so Michael, have you been a part of this company for a while, or did you just come in for... Um, I, uh, I'm in for this. I feel, in a way, um, you know, sort of like the guest here in this house. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking about what Katie's saying, and, and I think a lot of companies, you know, there's a lot of theater companies, and I think companies are always looking for really great, juicy, like, nitty-gritty, 
pieces of work that have to do with them more than anything else. Um, and so I think in a way it makes a lot of sense that this company, which I'm just now working with, is choosing this piece because it's, it's, I feel like it's very, it's very much about what's happening right now. And I'm not part of the company, but it's been neat to, to see how it all works because what I think is really neat is, you know, actors who are part of the company are serving as production manager. We've got, you know, everybody is, is working in many, many different capacities. And I'm sort of the guest who's, who's watching it all happen and also kind of, um, learning a lot from it. And, um, so I think it's neat working. You know, every company like works in a different way. So, so how did you come to get attached, be attached with this project? Yeah, um, Leslie is one of my oldest friends. Yeah, when I first moved to New York, she, I met her day one of college, which was eight or nine years ago, something, seven, eight, year, eight something years ago, um, and sort of watched this play develop uh, with her and. Um, I had done a, a reading of another play with the company last year or earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And um, it was not this play, but it was another great new play. Um, and uh, when they decided to do Cinephilia, Leslie said, Mike should, you know, Michael should do it. And Katie and the company said, hey, how about Michael? So I kind of jumped in as, as like a, a guest director. So that's pretty much my relationship to the playwright, which is, you know, a, a long relationship, and then my new relationship with the company. So those two things kind of came together. So I'm taking it, Katie, that you went to NYU Tisch. Yes. And uh, Michael, where'd you go? Same. Yeah, Ocean. I went. I went. We were we were sort of not. We were in different, you know, tracks, kind of. But mm-hmm. we were in the same, same box. We were in the same box, essentially, yeah. the same old box. So how was your experience? How were both of your experiences there at, at Tisch? <laughs> um. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, I did. I know that. There's that pause, the political, I better not say anything. <laughs> no, I mean, I, my, my family is from there. My closest friends are from there. My entire company, are, you know, we all went to school together and trained together. And we've been together for, like Michael said, eight, nine years now. And um, I, I really loved every minute of it. I thought the training was great. Um, I thought the opportunity was great. I thought to study and begin my career as early on as I did in the place that I knew would be my home long term was just right for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, going going to NYU, going to you know, choosing that as a college was very much about leaving and going somewhere completely new. And yeah. um, I don't know, the idea of college is also like a, a very funny concept to me. Um, but I'm, I was very happy with how it all worked out. Uh, you know, I had a really good time. Um, but I really do think of it as this, in a way it relates to this play to me because I do think of it as a box and you have a membership for four years and then on the last day you turn in your card and then, you know, sort of what happens after that is I think the really kind of the juicy stuff that's worth documenting and I think that's sort of what the... But I had a good time at school, not to talk about the play. I had a lot of friends and stuff. Well, speaking of getting out of that box, I mean, you know, there's tons of books to deal with, you know, how to break into acting with good and bad advice. But I always like, you know, talking to especially young, you know, fresh directors on the scene, you know, as to how how you go about finding your gigs, any advice you have for other people who are who are trying to find projects and and convince. Because the director's a catch-22, you know, sometimes, you know when you don't have anything to direct it or that they've seen and theater's very ephemeral, it's gone. 
So how do, how does the young director forge his way into the? Well, okay, f- I'm not totally sure, <laughs> but the one thing I know is. Um, I guess I just try to do what interests me, and it changes. That's not really an answer, but um, I try to initiate my own ideas, my own sorts of projects, and then I try to work with um, new playwrights who I think are creating plays that um, not only are doing something interesting, but also ha- are like porous enough for me to like come in and like breathe some, I think, interesting life into it or something. This is not quite an answer, really, but <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, do you go I don't network? wake up every day and consider myself a director. Do you go out to bars and chat with people? How, how do no. you network? How do I don't you... know. I don't, I'm, not, I'm uninterested. If I, if I could have it my way, I'd, I would do it on a basketball court in, in um, Savannah, Georgia, or, or, or New Mexico. I... I uh, which is, of course, a contradiction because, you know, everybody also wants to be recognized, but um, not interested in the game. I find it pretty um, impossible. And, um, and uh, I'd just much rather do my own thing and, and pretend like that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but back to cinephilia a lot. Um, exactly with the title and stuff, how, does, uh, how do the movies kind of tie in with the dialogue and the plot and the story, you know, the, the discussion the- and the... Yeah, I mean, originally um, the 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 first draft. I think we're you know Leslie's now on the fourth or fifth draft was was jam packed with the characters were only speaking through film, through quotes, um, and it was very much this story of living through somebody else's experience, like trying on other people's stories to find your own. So like you would have these characters, and then all of a sudden they would they would enter into a store sort of like. Um, um, yeah, yeah, they would try on a story and, and sort of work through that a little bit, which is like an ancient theme, like people trying things. And so, but now it's kind of a lot of it is gone, and and now um, what happens is every once in a while the characters do find ways to speak through film and speak through movies, and um, how that works exactly, we're 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 still figuring out. I mean, we're we are in the thick of kind of the discovery phase right now mm-hmm. uh, the very very precious like week right before I think which is I think perfect timing so now the show opens on May 29th is that right is my looking May 31st oh May 31st okay 31 <laughs> for all of our Hispanic listeners mm-hmm. we'll, we'll find out how many there are shortly after uh, tell us are you Hispanic listeners let us know do you want more Spanish <laughs> so and uh, where is the show playing at Theater Row, okay, right over here at the studio on the studio uh, in the studio theater on the fourth floor. Great spaces. I mean, I still don't think they're as as fully utilized as they should be for for you know nice. It's great technical, comfortable seating. Oh, I agree. And, I also right. think you know, as a young company, you know, every year we're trying to step up and you know become more recognizable, recognizable, and, and make more of a name for ourselves. And I think Theater Row. Is one of the only places where um, they're really welcoming young companies. You know, they help really are helping you legitimize, you know, what it is that you're trying to do. And um, they've been great men- mentors, and um, it's a really great space. It's cool to be there. It's nice, you know, nice change from 
Lower East Side or something like that. It's kind of interesting. It's new <laughs> for us, definitely. All right, so listeners have until June 15th to catch it. Uh, right? You, you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> catch it. <laughs> you know, Michael's giving the nod, which on audio reads very well. <laughs> and uh, again, so Katie Capiello, do you yep, remember? Got it. And Michael Silverstone, I thank you so much for coming down and chatting about Cinephilia. And I wish you the best luck in your run. And with the company, the Possible Theater Company. Mm-hmm. And that's P. And the website is the same thing: p o s s e b l e theater dot com. Yes. All right. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. On the boards. Well, I'm curious exactly how big the marquee is at the theater for the new city, because the new show playing there, the Great American All Star Traveling War Machine, I bet is going to fill up that marquee. And we've got Jim Neeson here, who is the director and conceiver of the show, and. Uh, going to be joined throughout the interview with a couple performances from some of the cast members. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Michael. Glad to be here. So I guess the first question always is uh, tell us a little bit, what is the Great American All-Star Traveling War Machine? Okay. If you parse out the title, and uh, I'm thinking about what you just said about uh, long titles, which I think I've always had a certain predilection for. A good friend of mine told me that uh, stay away from plays with one word titles, and I think I took him very literally. The, uh, the the first show that we ever did back in 1983 was the Comedy of Errors as performed by the Little Theater of Dubuque, Iowa, circa 1936. Is this longer than that? This is seven words, I think, or something. Yeah, this is, I think that one, yeah. that one seemed longer. That seemed longer, yeah. The, for color girls who have... Uh, the. When the moon is enough. <laughs> right. Well, I always want to top Marat Saad. Yeah, that, that's, that's my goal in life, is to come up with a title that's longer than that that people actually would want to see. Uh, <laughs> but getting back to this one, to your question, I think if you sort of parse it out, every word in there is some kind of a component that makes the piece make sense. Um, it's So you have the great or what all-American, so we know it at the moment it's located here, but the central point of the whole thing is the war machine. And this idea that throughout history there is a traveling war machine that has kind of ventured around the world to different places that at the moment happens to be running full tilt with uh, a lot of um, fuel being used up here in our country. Uh, And the other style... There's a war going on? There's a war going on. Yeah, you wouldn't know it. We need a draft, (laughs) I guess. I can't imagine (laughs) I'm saying that. but uh, oh, now you threw me off. What was I thinking of? <laughs> um, whenever I say um, I know I'm stalling about something. Oh, I know what I was going to say is finding a tone for a piece like this is always a tricky thing because uh, we did something last spring about um, it was based on interviews with uh, families of people who had died at the World Trade Center which was a very ultimately bright and inspiring piece, but you'd say what you're doing and people would say, oh, I don't think I want to go look at that. Um, maybe war isn't quite as, uh, as, as, as much of a downer, but to try to find a way to deal with what the piece is, which is about very, very human stories, uh, sometimes very funny, satirical, ironic, at times extremely moving, but they all fit together in this piece. And how do we find a title that somehow describes all of this stuff and at the same time, because the, the, the genre that is telling all this is a, a cabaret, almost uh, an early Second City kind of thing, like you know Paul Sills and all those people were doing years ago in Chicago. So it really makes... Um, a lot of changes, a lot of satire, a lot of um, 
songs that you wouldn't think have anything to do. I didn't want any anti-war songs in it. I finally said, well, there's two that work. But for the most part, we didn't want to lard serious on top of serious. And so a lot of the songs, including the two that you know we're doing here today, are used in a very different way in the piece. But I think they really connect. And one of the ways that that all works is it's a very collaborative piece. I brought in a copy of um, Lewis Lapham's new journal, the Lapham Quarterly, which I just, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Lewis Lapham's all the way, you know, from all his years at Harper's. And the first issue, which came out in December, is called States of War. And it's composed primarily of firsthand accounts of wars going back to, now whether you know, um, Homer actually was at the Trojan War or just <laughs> heard about it from very good friends. But you have some amazingly specific details. And the thing that Lapham talked about in putting this together about he was looking for pieces that always had a very specific and human voice to them. Where right away, he could hear the person who was describing something that was happening, whether it was, as I said, Homer before, or it was George Patton addressing his troops in that famous speech where after he slaps the soldier, and um, we don't have the soldier getting slapped in, in the piece, mm-hmm. but uh, to you know uh, Bush's State of the Union in 2003, that you really hear a strong opinion and point of view and something that resonates, I think, very fully with what the national or world or whatever point of view was about combat at a certain time. It's funny when you hear someone like Churchill who will say you know, something from the 30s about uh, naval tradition is nothing but Sodom, buggery, and rum or something like that. And then, you know, you read his uh, his great speeches, which I recently read. He cribbed some of those, actually, about, you know, we will fight them on the beaches and we will fight them and how those opinions can change and how the opinions of people, you know, uh, in the country where it's originating can can change. Um, I'm running out here. What else do you want to ask me? So, about? so how does yeah. the, how is the music incorporated in with this? Well, I think you know. Again, it, it's part of the genre. Um, I was talking about a little bit before before I sidetracked myself about it being a very collaborative process. And um, Irondale, our our theater company, uh, is uh, it's a 25 year old theater. It has a permanent company, but you know, like any ongoing enterprise, over the years people come and go, and they bring with them very specific and different strengths. Uh, at time, we've used uh, you know a lot of choreography in something. We worked with a, a choreographer for a number of years, Anna B. Parson, who's you know quite quite marvelous, and then she went off and, and did her own work. And right now, we have some people who the, make up the bulk of the company who are very very musical. So just as part of our regular rehearsal process, we were experimenting with a lot of different songs um, just because they fitted the company well or because they explored something that we wanted to, to strengthen among the actors. Then we started working on this piece, and as I said, we, I wanted to steer away from um, songs that specifically dealt with war or anti-war, although we had looked at a lot of those and kept, you know, I spent a fortune on... Uh, downloads keep bringing in obscure songs from the First World War. But all of a sudden, one day in one of our early run-throughs, I went, oh, let's let's get this doo-wop thing that we were just singing, because I think it really makes a comment on these series of telegrams that passed back and forth between the Kaiser and the Tsar on the eve of World War I, where they kept missing each other 
and you know, like, oh, I, I received your telegram, but actually the telegram he received was the one that was sent two telegrams ago, so he doesn't know the person has responded in the meantime. And it just kind of popped into my head that what this really is, it's an unfortunate breakup scene. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot, I mean, all the great love songs are about unfortunate breakups just about. So uh, we grabbed uh, Why Do Fools and had uh, the actor who was doing the, the Kaiser take the lead vocal on this. And all of a sudden, it just put it in this very different perspective. That, And we were talking about before we started today that... Uh, what, history is a tragedy for those who think and a comedy? No, got it wrong. It's the other way around. <laughs> it's a tragedy if you feel and it's a comedy if you think. Is that Wilde? Is, is that Oscar Wilde? It might be. I'm, I'm not 100% positive. Maybe a listener yeah, can correct me. I'm it's either that it's or it's Shel Silverstein. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but that idea that so often you're going one way about something and just about at the moment where you fear sinking into something that's very maudlin and sentimental, if you can flip that so that you're hearing it in a very unusual and different and fresh way, uh, I think that by putting this song on the end of the, the Kaiser and the Tsar thing, you, you do get a sense of how totally avoidable the beginning of the, uh, the First World War was. And Another just very odd thing that happened is there's another sequence that we do that is based on CIA directives to the staff office in Guatemala in 1954 about uh, preferred uses of assassination. You know, just all the things that you, know, you should do or shouldn't do and why throwing someone in front of a car is never a very good idea because it's not efficient. And... and we were having a hard time making the material come alive. I mean, it's always a challenge with something like this when the pieces that comprise it are not written specifically to be theatrical pieces. And sometimes you have something wonderful and say, well, that's really great, but it just it works on the page. It doesn't go. But this thing seemed as if it had possibilities. So after playing with it for a while, I was watching an old Saturday Night Live rerun when um, – Belushi and Jane Curtin used to do that thing where she was the host of the Weekend Update and then he would comment on something and eventually, you know, just bang his head on the desk and you could see the, the total venom that Jane Curtin was feeling in that moment. Uh, so we started working on it more from that angle where one of the, the CIA people is so hardcore he just completely loses control and and the his assistant who's also helping with the presentation um, just, just appalled by what he's doing. We've been working on a James Taylor song, which uh, walked down that lonesome road, which seemed to be a really interesting comment on the work that the CIA has to do. We put that on the end of, of the piece, and then several days ago, I was reading um, the Bob Woodward biography of Belushi and discovered that James Taylor had sung that song at Belushi's funeral on Martha's Vineyard. So these kind of just, just odd things that come in and out. And, and I mean, that's a, like a double obscure inside thing, I guess, that that adds to your enjoyment of the moment. It's, uh, but, but in terms of what that does for the scene, it's just always shifting it over to make you think in a slightly different way. Well, I know you brought in a portion of your cast. And uh -huh. I think those are the two numbers they're going to sing for us. Today, yes, that's right. So maybe now's a good time to... Bring them in and let them sing it. Now, is a total cast of eight? Uh, there's a total cast of eight. We have four of the people today, so we did some uh, vocal reductions so everybody would fit in the studio. And I think I actually, some ways I 
maybe I'll get rid of some of the other people because I like how these sound before. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a listen here. Okay. Hi, Michael David Gordon, originally from Brooklyn, New York. Hi, I'm Scarlett Marissa Rivera, and I'm from Long Island, New York. Hi, I'm Nolan Kennedy, and I'm from Chicago. Hi, I'm Petrina Murray, and originally I'm from Jamaica, West Indies, but my heart is in Brooklyn. A five, a six, a five, six, seven. Ba dum ba dum ba dum ba, lovey dovey dum ba dum ba dum ba, lovey dovey dum ba dum ba dum ba, lovey dovey dum ba dum ba dum ba, why do fools fall in love? Why do birds sing so gay? Lovers awake the break of day. Why do they fall in love? Why does the rain fall from up above? Why do fools fall in love? Why do they fall in love? Love is a losing game. Love can be a shame. I know of a fool you see For that fool is me Tell me why oh, Tell me why Why do birds sing so gay? Lovers awake the break of day. Why do they fall in love? Why does the rain fall from up above? Why do fools fall in love? Why do they fall in love? Why does my heart skip a crazy beat? For When the silver moon is shining high above the trees If I had stopped to listen once or twice If I had closed my mouth and opened my eyes If I had cooled my head and warmed my heart I'd not be on this road tonight Carry on Carry on Never mind feeling sorry for yourself It doesn't save you from your troubled mind Walk down that lonesome road all by yourself 
Don't turn your head back over your shoulder And only stop to rest yourself when the silver moon is shining high above the trees all right great so now is is the whole show a cappella or how does no that... no it, it really varies depending upon the need of the moment um, one of the things i think it's always tricky about putting a piece like this together is it's so easy for it to seem like oh they just picked a lot of arbitrary things so that the way that both stylistically and um, thematically everything has to talk each event with what comes before it and then what goes immediately afterwards. So, you know, just as you're kind of cooking your turkey, I guess. Oh, that's an unfortunate phrase, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, never. As you're hitting your ham, no, that's not much better. Um, anyway, as you're making the show, uh, you're always looking for, well, you know, what is that musical arrangement? And, and sometimes we use big marching band things to cover something. And then um, I think there there is an intuitive connection between all the ways the different pieces of music work so that, uh, at least I hope there is. And I think there is. Be confident, Jim, there is. Um, but it's not all a cappella. About 60% of it is. Uh, All right. Now, this is playing from uh, May 16th to June 15th. That's right. At Theater for the New City. And uh, it's a 90-minute show. It's a little bit longer than that right now. But by, uh, I would say it's probably about 100 minutes. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was just looking at your I know, I know. That was, that was my goal when we started last <laughs> January. <laughs> How long has this been putting, putting the show together and, and conceiving it? Um, well, I first got the idea. We were working on doing a – we do a lot of Brecht. And sometimes it gets tricky, you know, dealing with uh, the Brecht estate about what shows they want to have done in New York at a given time. And we couldn't um, sew up the deal for the piece we wanted to do. And uh, so I was just looking for something to substitute and, and came, found the Lapham piece right before Christmas. We decided after, you know, testing it out with some other things to commit to it, uh, oh, I guess the middle of January. And we've been going pretty much full steam, you know, since then as far as, you know, developing and then rehearsing it. Well, fantastic. Well, people can catch the show from May 16th to June 15th, the great American all-star traveling war machine. Um, website is irondale.org. Mm -hmm. That's your company, Irondale Ensemble. So, or you can also get tickets at Theater Mania. That's right. All right. All right. Well, Jim, I thank you so much for coming on and talking about the former. And a big thanks to your cast who, you know, came down on this rainy day to sing. <laughs> oh, thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> okay. Thanks. On the boards. Well, a few months back, we had. Uh, the Coyote Rep on to talk about their sound play series, and they actually got a new one up as well, and we might talk about that briefly um, at the end, but we're here to talk about their live presentation, the Coyote Rep's Lone Wolf series, which is a setting of four one-woman shows mm -hmm. all put together, and uh, to 
together with us here today. We've got Jean Lasala, who was here before with Coyote Rep, and uh, Donetta Grace. Hiya. Both <laughs> acting and doing numerous things with the Lone Wolf series, right? Wearing yes. many hats. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe introduce yourself so our listeners can connect your uh, names with your voices and tell us what you're doing with Lone Wolf. Okay. Uh, I'm Jean Lasala. I'm the artistic director of Coyote Rep. And I am performing in the Lone Wolf series in a piece I wrote called Spoiled Bee. Um, it's about a dancer named Beatrice who uh, can no longer move or speak or communicate because of an accident. And so she kind of goes through this journey of finding her way back to the world, um, even though she's in this very unfortunate situation and kind of finding new ways to express herself and to connect. So that's what I'm doing. That's what <laughs> she is doing. Um, <laughs> hi, I'm Donetta Grays, and I am actually doing a few things. I'm the managing director of Coyote Rep, and I've directed a piece called Stella by Starlight, written and performed by Heidi Tokheim. And it's a play about a young woman named Stella who moves to New York and wants to become a jazz player, a jazz <laughs> pianist, um, but she can't swing. <laughs> so there's a little problem with that. Mm. And one night, um, uh, Herbie Hancock kind of comes to her in this uh, uh, fantastical way and teaches her how to swing, and it changes changes her life. So it's a, a jazz uh, comedy. Mm -hmm. So if you're into that, come see that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also performing in a piece that I've written called The Cowboy is Dying. Um, there is original music, and it's based basically on semi-autobiographical stories of my my own life, as well as um, based on the themes of self-perception and uh, basically putting a costume on <laughs> to cover up your truth. And so you have this five-foot-two black woman who thinks that she's this cowboy <laughs> overall, and you see throughout stages of my life where these grandiose ideas get uh, crumble in the end, mm -hmm. where I think that I can control the elements and then I almost burn the house down kind of thing. <laughs> and that happens <laughs> throughout different stages of my life, teenage into adulthood. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a fun little piece. And, um, there's, and she wrote all the music. And I wrote all the music. <laughs> and it's all uh, folky, bluesy kind of, mm -hmm. kind of uh, music. And um, it is pretty, it's a pretty entertaining little program. She truly <laughs> burns the house down. <laughs> I truly do. By the end, of the, the end of the play, there's no theater. It's just, it's all gone. They had a little problem with that at first, but we worked it out. We worked it out. Yeah, and we yeah so each of the pieces has like a little bit of a, an extra, um, you know, they're theatrical pieces, but they have an yeah. extra performative element. Like Heidi's has the jazz piano. Donetta's has the original music. Mine has um, dance pieces that I choreographed. And mm -hmm. so there's, you know, there's it's like a dance, a movement kind of thing. And then we have another piece in the series um, written and performed by Andrea Caban, who's another Coyote Rep member, um, called You Got Questions, I Got Answers. And this is in a more documentary style. Um, Andrea interviewed 10 New Yorkers um, about their feelings of isolation and connectedness in the city. And she interviewed, you know, various different types of people from all over the world and, and you know, all living in New York. And it's, uh, it's a really exciting, very simple, very direct, and very uh, theatrical poignant, piece. Poignant, poignant piece. piece. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I think all of these pieces kind of um, address humanity in a very um, profound kind of way. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and it... Yeah, I was going to say, well, why is it called Lone Wolf? And, ah, and good what, question. Good question, <laughs> because this... It together. The, um, each year, Coyote Rep has a, a theme 
base like the um, season theme. for a season mm-hmm. theme. This season is isolation. So each of these pieces um, manifests that in some way, manifests mm-hmm. that idea in some way. As well as our sound play series is also yes. kind of touches on the idea of isolation and what happens when you have no one to talk to and no, no. one to, you know. So yeah, yeah. going um, it alone. Right? Yeah. yeah. The interesting thing, though, is our season is probably our, you know, our funniest out of the two we've done so far. But it's, it's a really funny, there's yeah. a lot of humor and a lot, you know, you'd think with isolation you'd have a pretty depressing season, but it's... <laughs> It's not the case. Each of them is like deception is a kind of like a dark thriller slash there's humor in it. There's a mm-hmm. lot of funny moments mm-hmm. in it. And then there's, you know, in each of our pieces, they're kind of lighthearted and funny in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, you can take one word and kind of redefine it, redefine it for yourself. In our in our talk back the other night, I was talking about Heidi's piece, and um, someone asked the question about how because she had been running, she's been running her piece for like a year and a half yeah, now. She's so. done it in some other. She's venues. an old pro. So. <laughs> she was our trailblazer. <laughs> she she certainly was. So um, so but her piece is very uplifting at the end, mm-hmm. and so my response to that was, you know. Uh, Isolation can mean, you know, what is the difference between encouragement and courage? And courage is having to go go it alone and having faith in yourself. So isolation can be, uh, yes, a very dark and uh, lonely kind of a place. But also, when you are alone and you only have yourself, you have to build build up and fly from there. Can too. be an empowering place. Too. Can be a totally empowering place. Yeah. Well, now, the show's running through May 25th, which mm-hmm. our listeners are just going to have a day or two to run out to go see quickly, the Go quickly. Go now. Go now. Go now. <laughs> but, but, but I'm curious, with a show like this, it seems like, um, you know, always, you know, community and, and, and small, you know, regional groups around the country are always looking for great stuff for, you know, their overflow of women, usually, in the mm-hmm. things. And, I, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of curious if you have any plans of, like, you know, publishing or putting this out for other groups to... To perform in their areas, I would love to do that. That would be that would fantastic. Be very exciting, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, we've all thought about, and um, for Heidi, this is you know she's been working on her piece for a while, so she's had a bunch of different opportunities to perform it. For but for the other, the rest of us, the other three of us, this is our first, is our time, first time. So yeah. we're kind of like, where do we go now with yeah. this? What do we do next? Because we're all really excited about the work that we've been able to encourage um, within yeah. each other. And so now we're like, well, okay, where? What's the next step? And you know, can we either perform at other places ourselves or have others perform it? So yeah, I mean, hopefully. It's, there'll be another life for it. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly. I mean, it's it's a whole new animal, this uh, solo show thing, you know? And I, from from my perspective, I mean, I'm I'm dealing with a lot of uh, different themes in, in, in my play. And, you know, I what I'm looking forward to doing is making it more concise. So it's, for me, mine is still kind of this work in progress. And... Um, and having this this platform which to perform it, it, it through Coyote Rep is, is amazing. So if I can, you know, continue to get deeper and deeper into the work and let that live, uh, I think it'll be excellent, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And um, hopefully, you know, hopefully we can do that within ourselves and let it expand out and you know, once we feel like we got something, we get it all out there, you know? One of our advisors on the series was uh, Lisa Crone, and mm-hmm. we've taken a lot of inspiration from her and what she's been able to do with her with her solo pieces and her solo pieces that have turned into solo pieces with other people. <laughs> and, like, you know, so we've, yeah. uh, you know, we, we hope to be able to expand these further. Well, it's, you know, because the one, you know, one man, one woman show has mm-hmm. been, you know, pop, a perennial popular thing, but I imagine sometimes it can be a hard sell because you've got one... Mm-hmm. Person, right. and, and, I mean, this seems like a great idea of you know bringing, you know, four together, yeah. pieces together to mm-hmm. you know make it more of an evening, mm-hmm. and also you know capitalize on on 
different things. I think some people are always like, well, you know, one person show, 90 minutes. Is this one, <laughs> is this one person <laughs> going to... 90 minutes of this one person. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, but here we get a, a, mm-hmm. an overview of, of, you know, four different women, four different personalities mm-hmm. and the things. And, and uh, it's a little smorgasbord. You know, each time we switch who's playing with who, so you get to choose which ones you want to go see. So it's Right. A it's a mix. A, you can mix and match. Mm-hmm. It's kind of lovely. And I mean, and the thing is that we're all very different women. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, culturally, we all are. And, um, um, in our uh, and in our experiences, and so we have to bring each of that to it. So there's something. There, re- I mean, there really is something for everybody. For everybody. You know, I mean, <laughs> I talk. I talk. A, I mean, one of the things. I guess I don't talk right at it, but one of the one of the things is that I come from. You know, I have a lesbian uh, experience. That's that's my whole um, experience in the piece as well. And I mean, and then we have. I, I delve yeah. into that more, but this probably isn't generally the audience uh, that would like really love to hear more about that. <laughs> 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 Yeah. Well, probably a couple. Yeah, probably a couple. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just saying, I'm just talking about the diversity of yeah, the pieces. No, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of diversity in the pieces. So. Right, right, right. And we've tried to reach out to different audiences through that mm-hmm. because we've got so many, you know, different, I mean, the whole jazz, you know, the jazz crew, the dance crew, the lesbian crew, the whole different, you know. Right, right, right. So there's, you know, something for everybody. What, what is the process for, for both of you in terms of writing this and putting together a, a one-person show that has an arc and characters and... Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like a you know. I, I know that Donetta, you mentioned before the interview that yours is semi autobiographical, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. Gene, Gene is yours. Is it, yeah, I, partly. I, I, I used to dance myself, so there, I had always wanted to write a story about a dancer, and so it just. Uh, so how hard is that crafting and, and putting together that that one person? It's show challenging. People, it's definitely for people who are trying to maybe yeah. do it themselves. What are your it took me some advice. time. I, I would say some advice is is to um, you know to give it time to, to to live for a while and don't rush it out there. I think when I when I started this, it was about four years ago, and I was still in grad school, and it was a twenty minute piece, and so I started it as this small thing that I did as my thesis project, and I kind of. Um, I, you know, I came up with the idea, and then I took the time to kind of develop it over the years, and to work on the choreography, and to kind of try it with some different people in different places. And so, um, and I guess, I, I guess it just, uh, you know, it, the, the interesting thing was I had I had been spending a lot of time reading and kind of delving into these stories of people who were in these situations of being trapped in their own bodies, of being, you know, kind of stuck either physically or mentally, and, you know, kind of like reading a lot about it and studying about it and reading different plays about it and books about it. And then when I finally sat down to write the character, it was just like all there. It was just, you know, she came out really kind of quickly. (laughs) So it was... uh, it was uh, it was fun, but then it, then I took the time to just kind of work on it, workshop it, read it for people, get some feedback, and you know, kind of keep working on it. And uh, and and don't be afraid of your own experiences. I mean, I think you know a lot of the really um, the stuff that I'm the most proud of, um, you know, of in the piece is it comes from some semi autobiographical place, and so it's very there's p- parts of it that are very personal. And I think when you're doing a one woman show. You really have to get that personal. Yeah, I think it's kind of part of the process, and I think it's uh, it was a really um, wonderful experience for me doing that. Yeah, I mean, you have to leave yourself open and make yourself available to changes and mm-hmm. um, and and criticism, and you know, because when you're forming something, you're actually trying to form a piece of theater. 
as opposed to when you do come from a personal place, it's it's a great place to start, but you don't want to go out and do a therapy play. You don't want no, you know no. what I mean? No. <laughs> you don't want to say, oh, well, it's me, and people come in, I'm so sorry for your life. <laughs> uh, no, but you, you're actually trying to make something where something actually happens on stage. Yeah, it has to be immediate. It yeah. has to, yeah, it has to be immediate. It has to be very present, and some, some change has to happen with the character of you, mm-hmm. and it can't, I mean, as for as much as you have to be a, a available to that personal experience you also have to have some distance mm-hmm. <laughs> to say to say actually I'm playing a character on stage and you know I don't want to come up here and like you know uh, yeah, pour yeah. my heart out no, and, no, you know it's true. but um, but it, it is that that the thing of, of building a theater piece so that there is a beginning a middle and an end <laughs> and, and, and an arc and something dynamic happening, and so that the audience is invited into the experience as opposed to just um, uh, just watching it. So something changes for them as well. So there they're was going something for me also about, I mean, Donetta touched on this, about writing a one-woman show that made it very difficult to kind of invite that criticism that I'm usually so excited to like talk to people about it. There's stuff I've written or stuff I'm interested in. Like, let's get your feedback. I'm really interested. But for this, like, literally it sat in my computer for a long time before I showed it to anybody because it really was like, I, I don't know if I can handle yeah. <laughs> the response of, you know, I'm like, go ahead and do it. But then once I did, I was like, okay, you have to really be open to that, you know, and, and to be open to changing it and yeah. to be open to making those those shifts, even when it's a very personal thing. And that's hard. It, it, is, it, hard. it is. It is. But, the, I mean, you know, you have to say for yourself, well, I can't be my own audience member. <laughs> you know, I, I know what's happening for me inside and it feels yummy and delicious. But <laughs> but once I put it out there, what's changing for you? You know, yeah. what's changing for you, the, the, the audience member? What are you getting? from the experience as well mm-hmm. so um, so putting all of those pieces together keeping it keeping it personal but also making it theatrical is, is, a, is a big challenge and I started with one song mm-hmm. and one story and I was like okay I'm gonna make something happen <laughs> I don't I don't know what this play is just yet and so I just had these pieces Mm-hmm. And um, so over the course of the last few months, I think since December is when I first got something really, really solid on stage, on, on page. And then I uh, got my director, who is fantastic, Isaac Byrne, who, who works with uh, Working Man's Clothes Theater. Um, he, he, who I found through Lee Silverman, who was great, great find. So um, <laughs> we worked together, and he's, he had this wonderful way of working where, you know, he was, he was, the best audience member ever because he's like I really wish that this could happen I wish that I could hear so and so's voice I wish that you know these changes and I'm like okay alright great and I go back and I just write 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 something and he's like great that's good that's good and then we can take things away and then put things back and really kind of uh, it was a nice little ebb and flow and so it's still kind of getting to that more s- solid point now but I, I think we have I have something that's that's really firm and a, and a real nice story that I think people can really relate to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so Lone Wolf through May 25th. And to wrap up, there's also a brand new sound play That's from right. uh, Coyote Rep. Yes, Which uh, a lot of our listeners are, are scattered around the states and the globe. Mm-hmm. And uh, you want to just give us a quick kind of uh, sum up of what that new project is? Absolutely. Um, we'd been doing sound plays and we'd been getting some feedback from our listeners that it's hard to sit and listen to a hour and a half long podcast. <laughs> so we decided for this year we were going to create a series out of one play. So this play is called Deception. It's written by Jeremy Dobrish and it was a full 
play written for the stage, not written for um, the internet. So we, we approached Jeremy and he was very excited about the idea and he took the play and he broke it into nine episodes. So they're about 10 to 12 minutes long each. And um, it's a dark thriller about a man who um, basically creates a whole life for himself that's all based on lies. So he, you know, he's he's trying to kind of lead this life that he wants, and he finds that the only way that he can do it is just by fabricating all of these stories, and the stories just grow and grow and grow and grow until this huge, you know, huge uh, event happens, which I won't let you know. I'm going to, <laughs> to make you listen to it. But um, you, it's called Deception, written by Jeremy Dobrish, directed by Glenn Callison. There's a cast of about 23 people. Yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, group led by Jake Robards and Heidi Tokheim, and myself, and uh, Mike Caban. And um, there's a whole slew of wonderful actors in the, in the piece. And um, and uh, I encourage you to download. Uh, there's there's two episodes currently available. Each Sunday, a new episode has come out starting on May 11th. So you can catch up and then get to the next episode, which comes out uh, next Sunday. So. All right. And so for the Lone Wolf series and for the Deceptions, mm-hmm. people can go to coyoterep.org. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So thank you so much, Danetta Grays and Jean LaSalle, for coming Absolutely. on and chatting with us again. Good to see you again, Jean. Great to and see you too. Uh, best of luck with your endeavors. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Top of the trades. Wicked in Chicago flies the coop. After 1,500 performances and over $200 million in box office, the Chicago company of Wicked will be taking its final bow in January of 2009. After housing actors like Anna Gasteyer at the Ford Center for the Performing Arts, Oriental Theater, the first Broadway company based in Chicago, says that the show has come to a bittersweet end. With the success of Wicked, Chicago plans to bring more Broadway companies to the Windy City in the future. The nominations are in for the 2008 Tony Awards. On May 13, 2008, in a ceremony at the Library for the Performing Arts hosted by Sarah Ramirez and David Hyde Pierce, nominees were announced in all 27 of the competitive categories. A highlight of the nominees are Best Musical, Cry Baby, In the Heights, Passing Strange, and Xanadu. Best Play, August, Osage County, Rock and Roll, The 39 Steps, and The Seafarer. Best Musical Revival, Sunday in the Park with George, Gypsy, Grease, and South Pacific. And Best Revival of a Play, Boeing, Boeing, The Homecoming, Macbeth, Les Liaisons Dangerous, and the Lifetime Achievement Tony went to Stephen Sondheim. As a quick cap, In the Heights was the most nominated musical with 13 nominations, followed by South Pacific with 11. Curtain Call. Well, sadly, we didn't have Marty Cooper this week. Uh, I tell you, he's had a bad year. Uh, now he just had a hernia operation. So uh, he should be back uh, by next episode, and we can do our uh, what will become an annual discussion on uh, what we think is going to win at the Tonys. In the meantime, if you'd like to wish him well, you can just drop him an email at broadwaymarty at aol.com. And I tell you, this guy, it really perks him up to hear from you guys. So in any case... Um, Remember, please give us a quick uh, five-star review on iTunes. Really help. Uh, it was great having, you know, it was really great talking to Danny Bernstein and Carrie Butler before they got their Tony nominations. So if you wondered why they weren't chatting about it, it's because the interview happened uh, just before the nominations. Um, in any case, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we will be back on June 12th, right before the Tonys, with hopefully a bunch of Tony nominees on that episode. In the meantime, thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. All aboard! I wouldn't want it to be too perfect there, guys. Broadway Bullet! It is live, after all. It is live.
So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.